Homer, maybe you'd have more fun at Moe's tonight. Oh, for some reason, Moe's always closed on Wednesdays. And then they realized they were no longer little girls. They were little women. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. Alright, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Little Women, 1994 version. I was so, so sorely mistaken when I uh, lamented in our previous episode about how this was a uh, film adaptation of a book, and then there was already another film adaptation of it. (laughs) There were, in fact, five film adaptations of Little Women. This was like the the fourth, the third or the fourth, I want to say. So already at this point, if we were doing whatever the equivalent was of a podcast in 1994, I would have bitched about how we're, we've run out of ideas. In the year of Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump, I would have bitched about how we ran out of ideas of things to do. Listen, number one, how many Hamlets are out there, including your precious many. Hamlet 2? <laughs> there's the Hamlet and then there's Hamlet 2 and end it. Uh uh, secondly, uh, unfortunately, until the patriarchy is demolished, you're gonna have to keep retelling Little Women. Eventually, you'll. But like, <laughs> my my understanding is, I I'm, I didn't even bother with the one. Was that last year that I got all mm-hmm. gassed up? Yeah. It's the same shit, right? It's fucking eighteen late eighteen hundreds. Uh, it's the same. There is a major major change that we we will discuss in real talk because I find it fascinating. Uh, but but yeah, it's basically it's Little Women. There's been I, I was about to say there's been no turn of the millennium Little Women, but I guess that was Sex in the City. So, <laughs> uh, or I guess Mean Girls probably would have been the 21st century version of Little Women. Hello and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, uh, and joined as always, uh, specifically on this just minigun unloading summer of Winona schedule that we've had here and starting to get delirious. Like when you back in the day when we'd work too many doubles back to back and time starts blending together. That's how it is here. Julio, we're traveling back uh, to 1994. One goddamn whopper of a year in film. Yep. To visit uh, Winona's best actress nominated for an Academy Award performance with little women. Are you excited? I am, Alex. I am for 
a variety of reasons, but chief among them that you had never seen this movie. As far as I know, you hadn't read the book. You knew very little, maybe nothing even, about this movie. And all I know is that you tweeted <laughs> that the movie was really boring. Very boring. Uh, uh, that was early on. So I don't know if, if things change, if, if things got spicier. It was before Bale got canceled. And that, that <laughs> definitely made me raise my eyebrows. And that was the second thing, that you texted me that Bale got canceled and uh, that that made me laugh really hard because I, I wrote the same thing on my notes. So, so I, I thought this was like one of my mom and my aunt's movies, like, but she said she had never seen it. Uh, I always lump this in uh, with like fried green tomatoes and steel magnolias. Those mid nineties. Um, you can say, I, I was going to say, no, I was going to say made for lifetime, but they're definitely an echelon above that. The, yeah, just the definitive, uh, white women movies. It's that... it's prestige chick, because it's not <laughs> you know chick flick in the sense that oh you just go watch a romantic comedy that just woman films, <laughs> little women films, little women films, a lot of women now, films. Lo- yeah, let's go ahead and get out of the way. The the Adam Driver joke. I watched Little Women the other day. Spoiler: there wasn't Little Women. There was a lot of women. Uh, but yeah, I I just lumped this in with kind of that uh, early to mid nineties. Um, I forget the movie we talked about where we did uh, Dracula new, new nightmare. I talked about how like there's that certain era of movies where everything has like this pre rendered VHS sheen to it. And that definitely follows, uh, falls into that category. Little women Um, and new nightmare. That makes sense. (laughs) I see where your head's at. Hey, they were both in 1994. That's uh, what a year in film it was. (laughs) So, the Summer of Winona rages on. Little Women, 1994, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. If this is your first time listening to Contrarians, we do appreciate you tuning in. If you're a returning listener, thank you. Give us a moment while we explain our gimmick to our new listeners. Uh, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine is our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated. A lot of times known as certified fresh. This definitely falls into that category. Uh, so we like to take those movies down a peg kind of exploit some of the holes in them. And conversely, we find a movie that's typically 30% and below, often referred to as rotten, make a case for its positive merit. Uh, reiterating, since this is one of them certified fresh dealies, the first portion here, Contrarian's Corner, will be where we uh, point out some of the foibles and not-so-nice things about the March sisters. Yeah, uh, and then once we get to the second half of the show, to real talk, that's when we'll find out exactly how bored Alex was. We'll see if he actually, if there was a, a bounce back halfway through, and then you'll get to hear uh, how I feel about it. Because I mean, there was no war. Like I kept expecting like something real to happen. <laughs> the war happens I guess off screen. The, there, there was a war going on, and the fucking Father Time, their dad comes home. <laughs> uh, so. Julio, 92%, uh, meaning the critics did love it. My understanding is we have some critic uh, reviews and also uh, some friends of ours from the podcasting community have reached out to weigh in with their thoughts as well. That is correct. We have a mix on this episode. Uh, Before we get to the positive clip, I'm going to read you a few Rotten Tomatoes quotes as we do from time to time. Uh, In this case, we're going to start with Todd McCarthy from Variety, who says, An outstanding version of Louisa May Alcott's Perennial, one that surpasses even the best previous rendition, George Cukor's 1933 
Outing, starring Katherine Hepburn. Uh, do you want to watch that one and compare, Alex? No. Not a Katherine Hepburn I, fan? It's not that. There's just other thing. If we're going to be picking a Katherine Hepburn flick to watch, I think we'll be picking something else. Maybe a few years from now, we'll do like the, the Summer of the Little Women, and we'll just watch every version. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess if we did that, then we'd have like you would have to lend me the fucking fall of the Expendables or like just <laughs> all guy movies, just total sausage fest. This life all. Yeah. Um, Lisa Schwartz's mom from Entertainment Weekly says, "If you can't get the man or boy in your life to budge, have a girls' night out with little women and leave him guessing at what you enjoyed so much." I find that a little sexist. Yeah, that's um, that's a hell of an assumption. Would, that was like Malibu Stacy shit. That's that's the type <laughs> of review that make Lisa Simpson mad. Uh, Chris Hicks from Desert News, Salt Lake City, says writer makes a character of Joe her own with a solid performance that takes her from girlhood to womanhood. Uh, what was that Simpsons uh, quote that I guess we're putting at the beginning of the episode? Uh, oh, uh, it's. It's like they're the old folks home or doing something. It's just complete. It's like six seconds long. It's a completely throwaway line of like someone just sees that Mo, the bartender's reading to like th- these old people or something. And he's it, it's just him reading the last line of it. And he's just like, and then they knew it were little women. And then he shuts the book. <laughs> I actually think the clip that uh, we've been sent uh, starts with that outstanding we'll see um one final quote director gillian armstrong's feminist spin on classic material retains the moving humanity of louisa may alcott's novel while reworking it with welcome freshness Uh, just a quick question do you feel this is a feminist take on that novel i know you haven't read the novel i haven't either but did you feel it was feminist yeah yeah not in any like way that annoyed me like there's some of course, I'm blanking on it now. There's plenty of movies that I've been like, uh, I get what you're trying to say. Oh, fucking Mad Max Fury Road. I get what you're trying to say. You can bring it back a few notches. <laughs> Again, saying that as a dude. So uh, obviously, maybe not the target market for that. But th- at no point in this did I think it was like heavy handed. Yeah, it's uh, I really that's if uh, already breaking into real talk here a little bit of like, I really like the idea that even in fucking when is it 1856 that this movie is based 1868 that there was still that idea that I don't fucking, I don't have to get married to be successful in life. Like that whole philosophy that Joe has. I think that's really admirable. Yeah. Again, just giving you a preview real talk. I I think one of the, the things, the marked differences with the, the latest one is that that one feels more modern because the, the idea is the same, but it's a little more outspoken. Those those ideas of, you know, why are we women expected to conform and uh, just watching it now, uh, having watched the, the one from last year, watching this one, it, it felt so tame. So then I read this quote about it being a, a strong feminist spin and I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess it is, but it gets even stronger <laughs> in the next remake. I'd also argue that, yeah, the movie is, but the marketing. Have you seen the poster for this? Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like the most chick flick. The time girls go to the movies, let's have fun, and it's like even for that, you gotta get them in there. You gotta get them in theaters. The fucking the fake snowfall, and also yes, Christmas happens in the movie. But I love that the poster portrays it like it's a Christmas movie. Like Winona Ryder's got to get to the store to get the toy for Kirsten Dunst. 
there's two Christmases in the movie. I think it qualifies as a Christmas movie. Oh yeah, well, Die Hard. We have been. Uh, it's been confirmed that this is what the second Christmas movie we've done in the summer, Winona. Because yes, we, we did have podcast listener John Golson uh, confirm that Edward Scissorhands is indeed a Christmas movie. So, if Golson says it, then it's it's gospel. Conversation over. I'm willing to consider John Golson the gospel when it comes to Tim Burton movies. <laughs> Not Christmas movies, it's specifically Tim Burton movies. Tim Burton Christmas movies. Um, all right, and we have one clip uh, from Ryan from Spit and Polish. We heard him before during uh, Reality Bites here uh, with his opinions about Little Women and his crush on one of the the performers in it. I hope it's not Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> and then they realized they were no longer little girls. They were little women. Oh, hey there. Uh, This is Ryan from the Spit and Polish Presents podcast, and I've been asked to give some thoughts and opinions on the Winona Ryder edition of Little Women. As an Australian, Little Women as a text, as a institution of literature, means literally nothing. It is not something that translates to me, but... The film version from the 1990s is something close to my heart. I am a huge Gabriel Byrne fan. I love Gabriel Byrne as an actor. He is much more versatile than people give him credit for. And I always point to Little Women as an example of the versatility of Gabriel Byrne. He is so adorable in this movie. He's so sweet-natured and cute. He isn't being your usual tough guy Irishman, in fact he has a different accent in this movie if you've seen it, and he brings out the best qualities of Winona Ryder as an actor. I think Winona Ryder is actually pretty excellent in this movie. I'm not the biggest fan of hers, and especially when she does a period piece drama, but she really nails it in this movie. She finds a warmth to the character, and As a Gabriel Byrne fan, he is the reason I watched this movie, I can't help but notice that he brings out so much in her as an actor. If you haven't had the chance to see this iteration of Little Women, and you've only seen the new version, I say give this movie a chance. It has some stunning visuals, it's simple but effective, and the new version lacks that that burn. It lacks the Gabriel. Nice. Really enjoyed that wonderful play on words at the end. And by this point, uh, for listeners, we'll, we will have not even been 15 minutes into the podcast, and there will be three different versions of that Mo joke from The Simpsons. So, <laughs> outstanding. <laughs> really, this is more so than an endorsement to watch or not watch Little Women. It's an endorsement to watch that episode of The Simpsons, I guess. The Simpsons are huge in Australia. I only think that because the Simpsons podcast I listen to is some Australian guys who say it's huge in Australia. (laughs) Definitely bigger than Little Women, if you assume that most Australians feel the way that Ryan does. Well, it's like Uh, the the world only really likes the seasons three through nine of The Simpsons. So, like, I guess only the 1933 Little Women is really accepted in (laughs) Europe and Australia. No, I was just going to say, I... I like Gabriel Byrne, too, not as much as Ryan does. 
uh, overall, and certainly not as much as he does in this movie. Uh, I guess we'll get to him when we get to him. Yeah. There's there's half a movie before Gabriel Byrne even graces us with his presence, but it will be his contrarian debut, yep. I think. Yep. Sorry to any uh, Gabriel Byrne fans before we get there. Just going to apologize already. He's fucking uh, <laughs> so much older than Winona Ryder. It's weird. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. So it's Christmas Day in America in 1994, and women, both little, big, and all, every size in between are flocking to the movie theaters <laughs> to visit the March sisters. Uh, according to Wikipedia, Responsible Meg, Temptuous Joe, Tender Beth, and Romantic Amy. All right. <laughs> the location is Concord, Massachusetts. And, and the, as we mentioned earlier, the the Civil War is going on while this is happening. Yep. So at least this is uh, this movie has a reason why there there aren't any black characters in the cast. Unlike Reality Bites, it doesn't. Reality Bites doesn't explain the segregation in the movie. So yeah, first and foremost, the thing that caught my eye is Winona Ryder gets absolute top billing. She gets that top billing where it's her name before the fucking title of the movie. So go, her agent did did the damn thing on this one. <laughs> did you notice who gets second billing? Isn't it? Um, Fucking Byrne, Gabriel Byrne. Yep. Yeah. I think he has less screen time than Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, and that was my but, second note, because like I knew Kirsten Dunst was in this. I guess this would have been filmed in 93. Did Jumanji come out in 95 or 96? Because I expected- I want to say 96. I expected that to be that Kirsten Dunst. She's like a literal child in this. She's not like a tween or anything. She's- She's the littlest of women. She's the, the littlest of women. She's the littlest March. And like- God bless her, but this appeal this applies, excuse me, to her entire overarching performance in this movie. Like when she showed up, she's immediately one of those child actors just trying so hard to be good. And like to the point of like there's almost like an SNL skit that could be made about it. Were you just waiting for her to uh, pull out her, her imaginary camera and just go click? I was waiting for her to like you know, point to her dimples or put her hands on her hips and turn to the camera and be like, and that's why we're little women. <laughs> But, you know, uh, you were talking about uh, crushes in this movie. The true smoke show of this whole movie is the matriarch of the family, Susan Sarandon. Uh, She gets either the and credit or one of the last billings in the movie. I think she gets and, yeah. Well, you want to talk about someone I still have a crush on to this day. I remember when I saw Jeff Who Lives at Home in the theater, I was just like, Joe DiMaggio slapping the table. She is the mother of the family. Again, their father is away at war. Uh... So it's basically just a house full of girls, uh, four of them. I, I I took it. I don't know if it's ever outright stated. Megan, her sister, is the oldest. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it's a lot of um, – this is going to be a bit more difficult of a movie to tackle because there's not really like a bit-by-bit plot. It's just ideas and like there's definitely – It's just like things that happen. Yeah. It's it's boyhood. Um <laughs> Little womanhood. And is this is this what it's like to be a girl or what it was like to be a girl back in the day? You know, men had stories. They 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 went to war. But women, they just had anecdotes. Today I caught the scarlet fever. <laughs> Today I used a branding iron and I burned my sister's curls out. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's uh God, you want to talk about you know, we always call it out like, well, we're not really one to comment on this movie because it's just two dudes talking. In my case, you know, a straight white dude. This is like the last movie on earth I should watch. I cannot relate to this at all. It's 
just a, a room, like a house full of girls in the late 1800s. There is nothing <laughs> about this movie I can relate to. So I'm just watching it, and I'm just like, yeah, I guess that's how it was. I don't know. Sure. I'll take your word for it, Gillian Anderson. That's why, yeah, they should have taken uh, they should have taken some risks with it and put, like, a wolf that lives in their house or something, and I could just be like, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's how it was. I don't know. That's how they're telling me. Like, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I didn't live then, so I have no reason to believe that's not completely true, and that's not how things were back then. But you know Keanu Reeves, so that's your entry point. That's exactly right. I can relate to it because, you know, he's he uh, succumbs to the temptations of the flesh, which is <laughs> – I watch that movie and I say, I can relate to Keanu Reeves getting down with Monica Bellucci because that's exactly what I would do. I watch this and, fuck, what, what is it they're arguing about? Um, oh, they're doing, like, plays together and, like, they're arguing about what <laughs> – like, who's going to be the, the, the queen or some shit? I'm just like, I don't, I don't care. Let's move it along. Are you telling me if you took the BuzzFeed uh, quiz of which little woman are you, uh, it would come up as, as, as just a as zero? You wouldn't get a, a response? I would be Eric Stoltz. I would be. <laughs> that's who I would get. They, who was clearly. Uh, I, I couldn't confirm this in my trivia research. So I'm just going to assume I'm right. He was clearly still in the process of making Pulp Fiction. That's why he had like a perfect goatee in 1868 whenever this movie was, you know, uh, submerged in. I wrote down that uh, Eric Stoltz is a Jeffrey Jones of this movie, uh, just in the sense that he does not feel period appropriate. Everybody else, I buy them as, you know, Civil War contemporaries, but he he's a little too hip. With the with the goatee and the glasses and just the the way that he speaks, he looks like Gary Oldman does in Bram Stoker's Dracula when he dresses up to go on the town to gallivant <laughs> around. Uh, yeah, so he was either he had either wrapped Pulp Fiction and liked the way the goatee looked so much that he kept it, or he was still in the process of it. And Tarantino was like, "Hey, man, you can't cut that man." Um, <laughs> so the narrative right off the bat is that. Joe, our main character, Miss Winona Ryder, the reason for the season, uh, wants to be a writer. And um, the movie, if it's not the opening of the movie, it's pretty close to is Christmas Eve. And they talk about basically what's, uh, how it's weird being Christmas without father. And I think on Christmas morning, they donate some of their food, their feast to like less fortunate families and stuff like that. But the whole thing is it paints the picture of Winona Ryder wanting to be a writer because she stays up the entire night, like writing. She has like this uh, manuscript that she's working on. So that paints the picture right away. Yeah. It um, also paints a picture of the four sisters definitely as just somewhat uh, selfish and self-involved. Kirsten Dunst, who's a total brat through the entire movie, uh, or at least through her half of the movie. <laughs> she is uh she straight up says, yeah, I'm just going to marry for money because that's that's really what's practical. And when our writer turns around at some point, and she's like, you know, it doesn't feel like Christmas without gifts. Yeah. And it's just so... Yeah, and then the oldest sister, uh, Meg, it wasn't Megan, it was Margaret, excuse me, is just kind of, uh, I don't want to say aloof, but um, she seems to have one foot out the door with the whole family situation. <laughs> she's ready to marry up and find someone. Uh, and we talked about Sarandon, Dunst, Byrne, Ryder. We haven't mentioned the not the uh, Contrarian's debut, but the silver screen debut of Catherine Brewster herself, Claire Danes. This was her first movie, and oh. she is here to impress. You think so? 
I think yes. <laughs> she I, she definitely swung for the fences. Uh, I agree. I think not to jump too far ahead, but you have to like ninety percent of the planet. You have to have watched the episode of Friends where uh, Joey's reading Little Women and Rachel's reading The Shining. Probably. I mean, that show was on TBS all the time when I was in college. So I don't, I don't remember these episodes like you do. Oh, dude, there is a. I mean, might as well bring it up now. A big point in the episode is when Joey accidentally spoils The Shining for Rachel. So Rachel, they get into a fight where they start spoiling each other. And Rachel's final hit, she just screams at Joey, Beth dies. <laughs> and Joey's face falls and he freaks out. And then Chandler is there. He's like, uh, Rachel, you did not just ruin the, the first book that Joey has loved in a decade. You, you didn't just ruin it for him, right? And she's like, no, no, I was kidding. She doesn't die. And then towards the end of the episode, Joey comes into the apartment and he's like really nervous. And he says, uh, Rachel, uh, Beth got really sick. I don't think she's gonna make it. <laughs> so anyway, th- this whole thing to say, I I found that most people that watch Little Women, even if they haven't read the book, even if they haven't seen previous uh, versions, they know that Beth dies because they watched that episode of Friends. Well, fortunately, I didn't uh, retain that because I did not know Beth dies. So. Okay, well, all this to say, twenty six years later, spoiler free, <laughs> baby. Uh, to me, it felt like Claire Danes had watched that episode of Friends. And her entire performance is based on the fact that she knows her character is dying pretty soon, which shouldn't be. (laughs) Obviously, Beth is not supposed to know that she's going to go before the movie is over. But every time that that I saw Claire Danes on screen, it was like she was she was telling all of us, hey, I know I'm out of here. (laughs) Suffer with me. My days are numbered. So, yeah, I mean, she's swinging for the fences, but with foreknowledge of what's going to happen, which is kind of a cheat. Uh, So the next door neighbor um, is uh, the main character that matters. The next door neighbor, Theodore, they they call him Laurie for most of the movie, is Batman himself, Christian Bale. (laughs) The man spoiled entitled white kid in this movie, I tell you what. Uh, He's Bruce Wayne, not Batman. Oh, dude, there's definitely some Bruce Wayne scenes in this, but um, is has he? Have we done a Christian Bale movie before? Of course, Alex, American Hustle. Oh God! And then we did uh, Terminator Salvation. So you know, only the hits. I was about. No wonder I don't remember either of those. I ah uh, God. So, but this is like the most of what we've done so far. What he just looks like, like in real life. Like, I, I don't think he did too much alteration to his appearance for this. Uh, he would have been, I imagine, maybe 20 at the time, if that. But it appears as though, and obviously the movie shifts this narrative throughout it, but our introduction to Baby Bale, as I have him in most of my notes, is the fawning that Joe Winona Ryder does for him. She just seems to be pretty smitten with him. Because he does kind of have, like, this bad boy aura upon, like about him. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess for the 1800s he does. But to me, having seen Bale in much more, let's say, masculine roles, it just felt like he was... I don't know. Man. He, his entire arc in this movie is how he just launches himself into the friend zone and then finds himself unable to escape it ever. Yeah. Which you know what you want to talk about something relatable in the movie. I think that once Bale gets there, <laughs> you can kind of tell. <laughs> he's Ryder, so desperate. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, 
Winona Ryder, I mean, she just wants to be friends. She's bored being with, with you know, surrounded by women, little and not so much. And now she has little Batman here. I mean, she basically has to fi- like figure out how to tell him you bicker like a woman without telling him you bicker like a woman. <laughs> like she says something like we can't speak without quarreling. And he, he doesn't know how to interpret that. But yeah, I think he, if not the bad boy, he's definitely the neighborhood uh, aristocrat. He's the, who's the, the little rich kid in little rascals that Darla's smitten with, whose dad is Donald Trump. That's that little weenie. <laughs> Have you never seen the Little Rascals movie? No. Okay. There's this little rich like kid who the never mind. Anyway. <laughs> so she initially has like this uh, kind of crush on Christian Bale. I think you're right. She meets him right away and he's so not cool and just <laughs> kills any potential interest she would have in him as a romantic partner. He tries too hard. Yeah. Well, and that's uh coming up here in just a, a few ticks we get kind of like these interspersed hijinks throughout the house the previously alluded to uh joe is trying to help curl her sister's hair um and i assume that's how it was done back in the day they didn't have fucking revlon <laughs> products she just has like a, a basically a, an iron in the fire and goes to uh curl her hair ends up burning some of it off it's the trials and tribulations of little women. No electricity, no YouTube to just YouTube a tutorial how to curl your sister's hair. You know how much shit I've Googled or YouTubed like tutorials of? You know how many times I've uh, YouTubed uh, how to charge my battery, my car battery? Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, I have YouTube how to do certain things with my car and um, like just fixing small things around the house. I would. I was literally about to say, "What did we do before YouTube?" But apparently, we just put iron <laughs> rods in the fire and curl each other's hair. We learn by uh, trial and error. <laughs> Try. Yes, exactly. So, what is this first ball that they're at? I didn't catch this. Like, they're at some local gathering, and Winona's really bored. And I, I think a lot of these things they do are, as my understanding back in the day, were just these. Um, like qualifying events or these circumstantial things to just let the local men meet women and just say, yes, you, I will court you now. Basically. Uh, I mean, later on in the movie, there's like a, a official, an official, what would you call it? You know, it's not a quinceañera because it's, it's a little older than that. But, you know, like <laughs> this girl is presented to society, kind of like saying, all right, folks, she's available now. So pick a number, get in line. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, but the first one they go to, I, it's more of a party, I think. But here we come back to that pretension, right? Because uh, Meg is wearing shoes that are too small for her. She Did she say that yes. she took him out of the trash or she went to Goodwill? I don't know, but she shouldn't be wearing those shoes. She dug in the donation box at the church and was like, uh, aha! Yeah. <laughs> they not even match. They're not the same color. Uh, and yes. then Winona's dress is burned in the, in the back. So her strategy is to always have her back to the wall. Back to the the wall, yep. <laughs> I don't know. Just don't go to the party. Yeah, it's not that hard. If I have a shirt with a hole in it, I'm just like, well, I'm not going out tonight. Um, <laughs> or YouTube, you, you YouTube how to how to fix your shirt. <laughs> so, yeah, at that point, I'm just like, I, I watch the video. And I'm like, that's too much work. I'm staying home. Um, <laughs> the only like the real significance of this ball or whatever that they end up at in the beginning here is it's the first time we hear Christian Bale speak, and his voice is. So soft, so angelic. It was just, I like literally, I laughed out loud. I LOL'd when he started talking just because it's, you know, after seeing fucking, uh, obviously like the Batman movies and um, 
Terminator and yep. the gravelly yelling Christian Bale voice for him to just be like, oh, oh, bother. Spot of tea. <laughs> and that's another thing. He's IRL. Christian Bale is English. But in this movie, he's not. Right. He just uh, he was raised in Europe, I think. Right. Doesn't he say that he he went to school in Italy, maybe he speaks French. Yeah, it, they do some like non sequitur just to like explain why he his accent is still kind of weird because it's him like he's obviously young. I did look at it. He was literally 20 when this came out. So it's like him trying to still do an American accent, but he wasn't at the point where he could really nail it yet. So they're like, uh, who did the screenplay in this? Robin uh, Swickard. Yeah, just real quick. It's like, uh, I was raised in France and I spent some time in Italy. So he being the spoiled kid that he is, he has a tutor uh, that comes around. Uh, John Brooke, who is played by Eric Stoltz, who my God, riding high Eric Stoltz. This would have been like this was his comeback. This would have been like when nothing the the sky was always going to be blue. The party was never going to end after this. Between this and Pulp Fiction, ninety four was the year of Stoltz. When did and, uh, when did oh uh, Jerry Maguire is ninety six, right? Yeah, he has like a I don't know ten second cameo in Jerry Maguire. I think that he already ran out of steam by then. Well, I know the thing was like it, the him being in Pulp Fiction was like one of those you know very classic Tarantino. Uh, I was going to say bookings, but. Um, castings and that it was just kind of so random in the part he played and like people thought it was going to like boom springboard him back and by no means is he bad in this but he plays the character of john brooke he very proper and he tries to tell laurie um how to behave at one point i, I remember a line of dialogue because christian bale like rolls down the window at his house he's like hey girls he's <laughs> like laurie girls are not to be yelled at like cattle <laughs> but then he comes out of the window and goes like I apologize. <laughs> <He also screams. laughs> um, the thing with that, uh, this is uh, pretty impressive. I-, I wish really that the movie had delved more into this because uh, Stoltz's character, he knows how to play the game in a way that Bale doesn't and also in a way that you wouldn't expect from the way that his character is presented because he is presented as a dork. Like you said, he's all prim and proper. Uh, just to go back to, to friends, you know, he'll be like Ross. He's not mm-hmm. the guy that's going to end up hooking up with one of the March sisters, uh, and yet he, as the he successfully, as the movie goes on, does manages to achieve everything that Bale didn't. He stays out of the friend zone from the very beginning, and uh, he actually seems to have a strategy. So uh, everything that that Christian Bale's character didn't do right, Eric Stoltz did right. He should have learned from him. He was a goddamn tutor. He should have <laughs> just been like. You know, watch and learn. But yes, eventually John Brooke, Eric Stoltz, uh, begins dating uh, Meg, the uh, eldest sister. I think at the point where they even kind of go on some faux double dates with Christian Bale and Winona Ryder. All the while, Bale furthering himself into the friend zone during one of the girls' afternoons alone when they're trying to do a play. He comes in and he's like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll play this guy and uh, just looks like a total dork. Like the, I think this is the point where Nona Ryder, like the, each second that goes by, her desire to sleep with him drains like sand through an hourglass, and uh, <laughs> it's really, really weird to to watch like a movie in 2020 where Christian Bale's smiling as much as he is in this. Yep, like that that was the thing that threw me the most. 
because he's Christian Bale now. And I don't, I don't know if he ever smiled this much again. <laughs> he didn't know that Beth died, and so when he watched this movie in the theater, <laughs> he never smiled again. <laughs> yeah, um, he he definitely uh, he smiled too much. I think that's one of the problems. Um, that's one of the things that turned Winner Ryder off. Just the, the dorky smile and just the willingness to humiliate himself over and over for these girls. There's a there's a sequence where you know they're on a sled and he's like a dog in front of them and he's just pulling the sled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it that's just you don't do that with uh with potential partners. You do that with you know, guys that you know have a crush on you and you just with the boys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what you do. You crack some claws and <laughs> pod some jewels and pull each other around like a damn sled. All the while, Kirsten Dunst has issues at school. She alleges her teacher hit her uh, and basically just reprimanded her for being a girl. And understandably so, this infuriates the March household to the point where Susan Sarandon puts in a request to withdraw. Uh, is it Amy? Is that the character's name? Yeah. Amy from uh, school and she's going to be homeschooled like her sisters did. So it's clear that Amy just wants to be what all her sisters are. The unfortunate distinction of her though, is she's farther apart in years than her sisters are closer together. So she unfortunately has the uh, duty of being the youngest in a lot of cases, which that was one thing I could relate to back when I used to hang out with my cousins back in the day and wanted to do stuff and I couldn't go out, uh, like in one of the scenes that follows. I can't remember where they go, but the sisters all go out and Amy's really resentful. And Do they go to the frankly, movies or do they go to the opera? I think that's when they go to the movies, right? Yeah, and then she can't go because she's too young and it's too late. Uh, I never did anything as shitty as she does in response <laughs> to my cousins. She's a brat. She is. She finds and burns Joe's manuscript, just throws it in the fire because she's bitter that she wasn't able to go see fucking, uh, I don't know, the third remake of little women at the theater <laughs> so yeah like i kind of got like jazzed because i wasn't sure what was going to happen in this scene because when a writer gets back and finds it and just looks at kirsten dunce and she's like i didn't do it and, and then like <laughs> she like tackles her and i'm like holy shit what's gonna happen yeah this isn't random here uh, this is where her parenting skills took a dip for me it's like she was okay when when the girls were somewhat behaving and she could just say platitudes at breakfast but here i think that they need a strong hand she basically lets amy get away with it there is mm-hmm. no repercussions other than i don't know she got she got manhandled by winona Ryder for five seconds she but, threatened uh, her life it was like very <laughs> scorsese-esque like uh when fucking joe pesci's in the casino and casino and they're trying to kick him out and it's like hey you fucking dumb i'm gonna fucking kill you your whole family's dead yeah, she's. But see, I I never saw Kirsten Dunst getting in trouble. Instead, Susan Sarandon decides to go to Winona Ryder and tell her, "Hey, you know what? You should forgive her because because that's just better for your soul." Like, no, just put her in the corner, give her a timeout. Don't. That's the problem. You know, you shouldn't be so quick to forgive, but that doesn't teach her anything. She's like um, Jennifer Goodwin in Walk the Line, just trying to take her dream away from her. <laughs> just like you're never gonna make it. That you should count it as a blessing that she burned up your manuscript. No one was going <laughs> to yeah. read it anyway. <laughs> I think that's the real thing. Susan Sarandon doesn't get it. <laughs> just, <laughs> she doesn't understand what it means that this book that she'd been working on forever, that now it's ashes. Right? Like, so I, I, I can relate to that 
somewhat, I guess. Now we're finding things to relate to in Little Women. <laughs> yes. Just when your parents don't really understand how much work goes into creating, let's say, art, uh, and to them it's just like, well, you, can't you just do it again? <laughs> What's the big deal? So what is this when Christian Bale brushes shoulders with uh... – he finds the older sister like at some really high debutante type gala. Right. So that's the quinceañera sort of. Okay. <laughs> they they send Christian Bale <laughs> to to keep an eye on her. I guess Winona Ryder was not invited. They only invited Meg because she's the oldest. And so they send Christian Bale to make sure that she doesn't do anything appropriate. Which yeah, once again it- just shows how neutered. They find him. He's just their errand boy. That is true. He's at this point, you know, the what would become the archetype for the happenstantial gay best friend in <laughs> many, many comedies of the uh, early to mid two thousands. So he doesn't do anything aggressive with her. He's just like he's just like fucking with her. He's like, what well, he's, are you doing he, in this dress? He, he slut shames her. I mean, th- that's the eighteen hundreds version of slut shaming her. No, no, no. Yeah, but I mean, he doesn't make any advances on her. But he basically like not just slut shames her, but like. Moral shames her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Class shames her. Class like, shames her. He's like, what are you doing in this dress? You know you don't like deserve or belong in a dress like this. And and eventually, like, uh, Stockholm syndrome's her, where she's like, ugh, this dress. <laughs> like, initially, she's like, it's so pretty. But then finally, she's like, I've been tripping around this all day. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to Dairy Queen and go home. <laughs> At this point, are they trying to set her up with Eric Stoltz? Or are they just trying to, like, have her at arm's length? No, I, they're very much not in favor of her having any sort of relationship with Eric Stoltz, at least not Winona Ryder, because she's uh, earlier when they went to the movies and she saw them getting a little flirtatious, she just grabbed Meg and took her into the into the house. It's not That's until right. much later. I think that she's, I don't know, the, the movie's never clear, like how long did she have a relationship with uh, Eric Stoltz before everybody else found out and, and how intense it was. Because the thing is, Meg couldn't find one of her gloves to go to this party. And then later we find out that Stoltz had the glove. Uh, Yes. Obviously, he stole it because she didn't know where it was. I don't think she was faking that. Which, again, he knows how to play the game uh, in the most uh, ruthless fashion (laughs) for the 1800s. He stole the glove and gave her, I guess, an excuse to go find him later. I don't know. 101 works every time. Didn't bother teaching Christian Bale any of this. <laughs> uh, so back at the March sisters' household, we get a telegram in from Washington Hospital, and father has been wounded in the war. And so the plan is they're going to send Susan Sarandon off to be with her husband. Uh, for Unfortunately, the money's tight in their household, and there isn't like TaskRabbit or Favor for them to get a few quick bucks <laughs> via. So Joe goes and sells her hair. And gets like a Lloyd Christmas bowl cut almost and comes back and there's the big reveal of her short hair and whatnot. And I I wrote it down because I thought it was actually a genuinely funny line. They're all like freaking out about it and whatnot. And Winona Joe says, this isn't going to affect the state of the union. And I I thought that was a great line and I was surprised I hadn't heard it up until this point in my life. Very appreciative. I thought that you were going to refer to Kirsten Dunst. Kristen Dunst's line where she goes, your hair, but it was your only beauty. I didn't catch that. What a bitch. <laughs> yes. Um, again, well, two things. One, they have a rich aunt and uh, Winona was supposed to go ask the rich aunt for the money 
So on one hand, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's just so noble of her to to cut her hair for whatever reason, you know, to, to get the money. But really, she didn't even try the easiest way of doing it, which was just ask the rich aunt. I mean, she knew that she was going to have to swallow her pride because nobody likes that aunt. But still, to me, it seems like a lot more practical, a lot uh, faster. It's just a better way of getting the money. So I don't know, it just seems to me like the movie contriving so that we can have a hero moment with Joe where, you know, she cut her hair. Uh, but then the other thing is that once again, <laughs> Eric Stoltz swoops in like a mastermind, almost seals the deal by offering himself to accompany Susan Sarandon to uh, yeah. wherever she's going. Again, this guy knows how to play it. Maybe that's just what he does. It's he's like a wedding crasher, but instead he like fronts as a tutor and comes in and finds <laughs> very vulnerable women. And like, yeah, like the haircutting wasn't even good. She did, we didn't see her looking in the mirror and like cutting her own hair off while free <laughs> by the martinis played in the background. <laughs> Was not up to snuff with what we have seen so far on the Contrarians. I mean, we do get uh, a shot of her crying in the middle of the night. And uh, Claire Danes comes up to her and she's like, oh, you know, that's going to be okay. Don't worry. She's like, no, I'm crying about my hair. <laughs> yeah. It was actually really funny. So mom is gone. Uh, inmates are running the asylum. Beth had been kind of nannying and uh, babysitting for this immigrant family. And she shows up one day and it's probably my favorite scene in the movie from an acting perspective. Really? Uh, yeah, it's great. It's really, uh, it really, really reminded me of the scene in Big when Josh is staying in the hotel for the first night alone, and he's just like hearing all these things, and he doesn't know how to interpret them, so he starts freaking out. But basically, Claire Danes Beth does not speak the language of this immigrant family, but obviously knows how to take care of a baby. Everyone in the family's crying, the mother's screaming, and uh, I didn't catch what language it was, but this the body language, the gesturing, the dire uh, nature of the situation. It's clear the baby's sick. Uh, and because of that, Beth gets sick. And what we come to find out it is, is the scarlet fever, which I had only heard uh, mentioned before. I don't really have too much knowledge of it. Well, now you know it kills. <laughs> Was the scarlet fever a democratic hoax during the Civil War? <laughs> I mean, nobody was wearing masks uh, in that household. and No uh, social distancing. No. Uh, and this is why the scene doesn't work for me, because... Like you said, Beth doesn't speak the language. She doesn't know what the deal is here. They could have been asking her to just change the baby. Like the diaper was dirty or whatever. But her performance is so over the top. Like she's basically about to cry for, I don't know, a solid 30 seconds. Her lip is quivering. Her eyes are all tearful. Like I said, she's acting like somebody who knows what's going on. She knows that this is the moment that her character gets sick and dies. But it doesn't make sense. So to me, that's clear Dane's going a little too far. Here, Here's the thing, though. You did not know that Beth was going to die. No. So, so when this happened, did you think that she was maybe overreacting? I mean, I know you said you liked the scene, but were you like, what's the big deal? <laughs> no, she's, she's like, how old is she supposed to be? Like fucking 15, 16? You know how emotional you are there. And then you have this person yelling at you in a foreign language, and you know something's very wrong. And like, again... This is a time period where people got the flu and died. Like, it's not just like, you know, obviously it's not like um, old Viking days where you could get a sore tooth and die or, you know, but still 
getting sick was like a 50-50 back in these days. So I think she realizes that. and I, I just think her acting is really good for how young she was and how this was her first uh, her first go. I think it was really uh, a good scene. And because, you know, how weird I am with like little tiny snippets of things or what appeal to me most. And like, because it's like a fucking 30-second scene. But we go back home and she's not feeling well. And she is diagnosed with the scarlet fever by the local doctor. What comes of this is that they have to get the child out of the house. And so Amy, Kirsten Dunst, is going to go stay with uh, Aunt March. And also because of the situation, because God knows how much more time she has left, they send for Susan Sarand and they send for mother because it's time for her to come back. Um, Just abandon the father. He's a grown man. He can handle He's whatever a, gunshots yeah, it's taken. For real. He was at war. Like <laughs> She didn't even need to leave in the first place. He could just FaceTime her. So they send Amy off and her, uh, I guess, courier is uh, Lori Christian Bale. And this is the canceled scene. This is where Bruce Wayne himself, Christian Bale, John Connor was canceled now and forever. Uh, <laughs> he is the escort for Amy. And on the way on this horse-drawn carriage that they're in rickshaw uh she explains to him that she doesn't like the ant she's scared and she goes into like she's worried about she's gonna die and she says she can't die i've never kissed a boy <laughs> and christian bale like looks at her and like raises his eyebrows like <laughs> a fucking animal house and says uh i promise you i will kiss you before you die or something like that <laughs> just worse I'm, fail me I'm not doing justice to how weird it is. It's it's weird, especially because there's a lot more buildup than what you just gave it, and that makes it even grosser. There is you can you can almost feel where the scene's headed before it happens, uh, and the fact that it doesn't come out of nowhere makes it even worse. It's not that oh he says it and then he's like oh, never mind. I mean I didn't mean it that way, and he but no he they both knew exactly what they were doing. This was a little girl. Uh, that you know what's kind of being flirtatious with the boy that has been paying attention to her older sisters, which is innocent. It's you know she's a she's a girl, she's a child, uh, and then the adult in this situation, <laughs> it just goes the worst possible response. Probably what makes it even grosser in retrospect is that once you know where the movie goes from here, you realize that it was never accidental. <laughs> Yeah. Just uh, what do they call this? Is this what the um, grooming? Yes, grooming. That's the, the the hot word. So yeah, has this movie been canceled yet? I know like so many movies have been canceled. Uh I guess not because he's so dreamy and uh I don't know. Because <laughs> the immediate response from people like you and me be like, but he's Batman. <laughs> um, he's Batman and she's in Elizabeth Town. Obviously things turned out fine. <laughs> Do they do anything comparable to this in the modern version? Is there a groomer in that movie? I mean, the the characters there, the 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 path that these characters take are the same. I I think the newest version makes it even clearer that that Amy has a crush on him. I think there's mm. more scenes, there's more beats showing how she really wants his attention all the time. Uh, I don't remember if there's the actual "I will kiss you before you die" moment, but. I mean, it's still there. I, I don't remember if they found a way of making it less creepy, but it's... I mean, it's all there. It's, it's all there. 
I I think that maybe the and this is more real talk I guess than Contreras Corner, but I think that maybe the way that people are at peace with it is because they end up together in a way that the movie and the the book I guess sells you as a happy ending. Therefore, well, it's no longer creepy because they end up happily ever after. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we're being moderately real right now, it's really not. It's it's weird because I'm supposed to think it's weird right now, but in the context of the story, it's it, it is what it is. It was the 1800s, is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. If he had kissed her right then and there, I think we'd be talking about something like we were talking about fish tank or something like that. Um, you're saying if if Fassbender was playing uh, Laurie, oh yeah, this scene, he would have gone for it. He would have had like a bottle of beer in his hand and just kind of put it down and lifted her chin up. And God, Fish Tank is a good movie, people, but it's it, it'll stay with you. Um, Susan Sarandon returns home. In the end, a mother's touch is really all that's needed. As Claire Danes lives, the doctor had already counted her out. Redditor writes, yeah. like left her DOA. And um, so she survives the bout with it. Unfortunately, though, the fever did its damage. Uh, I, when I was watching this earlier, like a wrestling reference I can make, the, the Von Erich family, uh, one of their family members, Mike Von Erich, uh, had toxic shock syndrome in the mid-'80s, and it like his fever got up to like 107 or something like insane and kind of like fried his brain. And it's a really sad story. Uh, ended up committing suicide. And I almost tweeted like, Holy shit, Claire Danes with the Mike, Van, uh, Mike Von Eric storyline. But then I remember that, uh, Kevin Von Eric, one of Mike's brothers follows me on Twitter. And I was like, <laughs> probably not going to do that just in case he's ever seen little women. Cause he might take offense to that. Um, <laughs> Because as you know, anyone that follows me on Twitter, I'm so worried about offending people. Um, So Beth lives, but unfortunately, the scarlet fever did its damage. Um, Her first time coming out of bed is, uh, to our knowledge, to the viewers' uh, knowledge, is Christmas. It is Christmas once again in the March sisters' household. Uh, Lori's there with some friends from college. All the sisters are together. Some local old dude from the neighborhood like gives her his piano. It's the neighbor. It's uh, Lori's uh, grandfather. Grandfather? Okay. And uh, he explains it was his daughters or granddaughters, and she had passed, so he wanted to give it... uh, to someone who wanted it or someone clearly, who needed it. Clearly, this man had not watched the episode of Friends. He did not know that Beth dies. <laughs> Jesus. So he's like, yeah, I want it to be used again. Don't well, take the tag off of it. <laughs> uh, but she still can tickle the ivories. She starts laying down some tracks for uh, Christmas. <laughs> and their father returns. And God, it's... it's, it's what? How, how did this old dude pump out all these kids? <laughs> <laughs> well, he looked a lot, a lot sprightlier uh, before the Ernest war. Borgnine in a Santa beard shows up. <laughs> it's the movie's own fault because they've built up the character of the father so much. We've spent half the movie hearing about father and how awesome he is, how we cannot wait for him to come back, and I miss him so much. So when he comes back, you expect—I don't know—either an impressive figure that you've never seen before, or a recognizable cameo. League of Their Own. Bill Pullman. You build up Gina Davis's husband the entire time of League of Their Own, and it's yep. Bill Pullman. And you think to yourself, that's worth it. That's worth the payoff. <laughs> you get fucking not Ed Asner here showing up at Christmas, <laughs> and it, he's just 
old and like uh kirsten dunce goes to give him a hug and he's like whoa that's me old limping knee or some shit it's yeah it, you're exactly right they build him up and whoever they cast for him i apologize to whoever it was but uh, for as small of a part as it is it should have been someone of some notoriety well that's the other thing that uh there's all this buildup of we cannot wait for father to come back but then really after this one scene i think you maybe see him once in the rest of the movie and it's kind of like in the background he's folding his pants or something because he's <laughs> napping he goes to bed at 4 p.m <laughs> yeah he never he, he never plays a role he was it's almost like he was more significant when he was away once he came back they forgot that he even existed uh and just as a, as a side note, uh, this character, the, the remake, the most recent remake, went the other way, and they cast Saul Goodman, uh, whatever his name is. Bob Odenkirk? They cast Bob Odenkirk, which to me was a little too much, because yeah. it was just distracting. It's, it's Saul. Saul from Better Call Saul. That's so funny you said that, because right before you got on your point, I was going to make the joke that, like the father character in this movie is like Robert Forster in Breaking Bad in that like he's only ever alluded to. And uh, so when you finally see him, it should be some grand payoff. Breaking Bad on the minds of the contrarians. Always. Uh, yeah, I was about to say that's that's perennial. Oh, by the way, I think in the final, the killing blow in the Eric Stoltz uh, conquest of the marriage family, he's the one that brings the father home. He he opens yeah. the door, the guy comes in, and then next time we see him, he's making out with Meg. I don't know if they had kissed before, but this definitely sealed the deal. He opens the door and he's got the he's got the dad and he's got a, a pizza from Pizza Hut <laughs> and he's just like, I come bearing Christmas. <laughs> so Joe does find Eric Stoltz and Meg making out in the doorway. It's Christmas after all. And then we get our big title card four years later. There's whatever the top 20 pop song starts <laughs> yeah i'm trying to think of like uh they should have done the research to find one huge advancement in technology in that four-year period and the first cut should have been winona Ryder. i don't know using a sewing machine or driving <laughs> a car or something uh and the long con the game has paid off for mr eric stoltz as he is marrying meg we cut in at their wedding ceremony and all the sisters and Christian Bale are gaily dancing about and gallivanting and whatever other expressions we want to use to describe what they're doing. How do uh, you? What expression do you use to describe uh, a lack of Kirsten Dunst? She's been replaced. It's <laughs> this is something Christian Bale would become accustomed to in his career. <laughs> And she is now Samantha Mathis, who I have no other knowledge of. Oh, dude. Princess Daisy from the Super Mario Brothers movie. That would have been around the same time. That would have been before this. That's incredible that she got a, a casting in a movie like this after <laughs> Super Mario Brothers. God bless. Bob um, Hoskins put in a good word. They wanted Bob <laughs> Hoskins to play the dad. And he said, you oh, know what? God. No, I'll pass. But let me tell you about this very promising young actress. <laughs> God, Bob Hoskins, where are my little women? <laughs> uh, wedding goes off without a hitch. We see like 30 seconds of it. Uh, Christian Bale and Winona Ryder retreat to the forest. They go on a walk. And Christian Bale, as one usually does at weddings, gets really hyped up on the idea of romance and uh, also just all crazy horned up. He proposes to <laughs> Joe 
And this is where she says, basically, we can't get married. We're too much alike. We'd fight all the time. We quarrel. It's like, no, we don't quarrel. And he's like, she says, like, we're fighting as you're trying to propose marriage to me. Of course, we're going to fight. And this, like, crushes him. And he tells her, basically, I shot my shot. And I know one day you'll find a man and he'll make you happy and uh, you'll make him happy. But now I have to go. And I think she immediately has, like, uh, whatever the opposite of buyer's remorse is. Because she... <laughs> buyer's relief. <laughs> buyer's relief. She gets really sad. And then we see her, like, uh, coddled in the arms of Claire Danes. And she doesn't know if she made the right choice. Yeah. Uh, this is this is when the movie actually made me mad. Because I, having seen it before and having seen the other version and everything, I know where the story goes. And... It really felt that, I mean, you know, we joke, poke fun of all the little old-timey conventions, even, uh, you know, Christian Bale flirting with a child, all that stuff. But really, the idea is not even that when a writer turns Christian Bale down because it's Christian Bale, although that's part of it. She also says that she just doesn't even know if she wants to get married. That's her whole struggle in the movie is that she wants to be an independent woman. She doesn't really... She wants to be more than just somebody's wife. And Bale, he basically mansplains it to her. And he goes, one day you're going to find a guy. And you're going to get married. You're full of shit. And and I'm not going to be around to watch it because I can't handle it. But trust me, I know how the world works. And that's really what's upsetting, what's really sad and kind of a missed opportunity. And I think that it's something that flies in the face of the supposed feminism of the story is that... The movie ends up with Joe getting married, or at least, you know, getting engaged. In the end, it's just about finding the right guy. It wasn't about her wanting to be an independent woman. Bale is proven right by the second half of the movie. She just needed to meet the right guy, which is insane <laughs> to me. For the, the, that's It's such a weird turn for the movie to take after everything that they've done setting up this character. So as if Joe's day wasn't melancholy enough... She finds out that Aunt March is offering one of the girls a trip to Europe, and it's always been her dream to go to Paris, and she feels she would be able to expand her wings artistically and with a trip to Europe. And then Amy's just like, oh, should have led with the important thing, and that's <laughs> me she's taking. So Joe's just having a shit, shit day, and it leads her kind of into this downward spiral slash existential crisis and she has this big monologue to Susan Sarandon about um, she calls herself awkward and clumsy and she's like just questioning aloud repeatedly if she's made the right choices in her life by standing her ground and not needing a man and now no man will ever want her and it's like uh, you're Winona Ryder (laughs) yeah Susan Sarandon's like what are you talking about you're 17 and uh, (laughs) it's an interesting monologue it's I think I would never speak from the perspective of a woman, but uh, friends I have that are similar ages to mine and just women I've spoke to, I think this is a a real thing a lot of women go through. So in a weird way, I was kind of able to relate to the scene just because I've heard similar uh, speeches from people. Um, Speech is a a wrong way of wording that. I've heard similar sentiments um, expressed. But the part that took me out of it is like, isn't Susan Sarandon just like tending to Beth this whole scene or she's like folding clothes or something. She's doing something where she's completely preoccupied and she's like, yeah, I know it sucks, man. <laughs> well, I, I don't blame her for not taking a writer seriously because I understand that every 
uh, especially young people, they, they can be very self-conscious about their appearance and lacking confidence. But in the end, it's it's just one of those movie conventions that has aged poorly when you cast a beautiful woman and then you have her act as if she was yeah. not a looker. That's the problem. I, it, Joe March acts and is perceived by the movie as if she was kind of a, a, a plain-looking girl. In, Homely. Yeah, and the thing is, I mean... She looks like Winona Ryder. So when she wonders if she, if anybody's ever going to find her attractive, it's like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 a it's a tough buy. So in this fracas, in this fray, there's basically a fork in the road. Uh Laurie ends up going to London. He's going to work with his grandfather more closely. Uh Joe ends up going to New York to explore her literary options there. Uh, initially she can't sell her writing as they are like written from the perspective of the, the modern woman, the go, go, rah, rah, we can do it. The <laughs> Rosie, the riveter type woman. And all these newspapers are like, one of them calls them fairy stories. She's like, they're not fairy stories. She does eventually meet Friedrich though, who is a professor they have a meet cute, right? Doesn't he bump into her in the middle of the road? And she, of course, like in every romantic comedy ever, she just spills her papers all over. So then he has <laughs> they go to go everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's preposterous. And but they become close. And initially they're kind of like not business colleagues, but more they have a, a professional relationship in which uh, he'll read her writing, offer feedback, things of that nature. He's a bit older than her, but they appear to be um, intellectual peers. He is fucking dull. I couldn't believe that he was making me miss Christian Bale and his <laughs> failed courtship. Uh, and part of it is that uh, Gabriel Barron, unfortunately, much like Eric Stoltz, he knows how to play the game. He's a very he's older, so he's even craftier and he's even more ruthless. Um, I'm sure you notice eventually that this is basically what the kids call negging, I guess, today, where yeah, he offers Winona Ryder feedback, but most of it is negative. He's constantly putting down her her writing, and then she just wants his approval so much that eventually it turns into something else. Uh, and it's almost as gross as uh, Christian Bale and Kirsten Dunst in that carriage. Man, I've heard negging in so long. What a philosophy. <laughs> uh, so she becomes closer with him, gets you know all the writing advice from him rubs shoulders with his friends and is invited to dinner parties and whatnot. Uh, I just have an all caps Danelle Logue. Yes. Cause he plays, I guess he's the mayor of New York and just kind of <laughs> talking about like why, uh, you know, black people and women don't need the vote and that type of thing. And I, it's a scene that I don't know how it didn't make the cutting room floor just because it's so, I guess they just had to, we got Logue, man. We got it. We had to pay him that much. We got to use that scene it's for the trailer. It, it expresses the point of Winona Ryder saying women are equal just because you think we're good doesn't mean we shouldn't have the right to vote. But the point is, like, I don't feel like there's enough to the scene to really validate it. It's really like maybe 45 seconds long or a minute, and then it just kind of moves on to the next thing. Yeah, it doesn't really build up to anything anyway. It's not like she goes on to become an activist or to explore a career in politics or her writing becomes political. You you could really the main takeaway from this scene is that she doesn't speak until Gabriel Byrne kind of gives her the the go. Right? She's she's yes, trying to raise her yes. hand and then Gabriel Byrne's like, uh, gentlemen, let's hear what the pretty lady has to say. 
I believe my date has something to add. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, like, also in the scene, too, uh, the very uncomfortable, she's like, I don't drink wine, only medicinally. He's like, well, just pretend you have a cold. It's a fun drink. This is just textbook older man molding a, a younger woman to what he wants. Just, just, she doesn't have to drink, man. Leave her alone. For real. She should have just flashed him the X and said, I'm straight edge, bitch. Get that away from me. <laughs> Uh, she does eventually get some writing published, but it's because she had to sell out her, uh, artistic integrity. She is Joseph first and foremost. So she, uh, had to submit it as a man. And then also she's writing like this fictional dribble and, um, sounds cool as hell. <laughs> I, she's writing about vampires and zombies. It really reminded me of the scene in Inside Lewin Davis where they're doing the Please Mr. Kennedy uh-huh. and Lewin turns to Justin Timberlake's character. And he's like, who the hell wrote this? I did. <laughs> Joe March. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of suns her for it. It's like, you're selling yourself out. This isn't good. And she gets upset and he immediately apologizes and they end up going on this opera date. But it's very Lady and the Tramp-like in the sense that they have to sit behind the curtain in the... I guess he probably knows someone in the production crew that could get him into the catwalk to watch. This is where he takes his his dates when they're when he's ready to pounce. Because it's the perfect place to make out. You're not going to make out when you're in the official seats watching an opera. But if you're no. just, you know, up there, nobody's going to say anything. And he, he goes for the kill here. Speaking of going for the kill, Christian Bale has grown a goatee. Like one of those two-parters, there's no connectors, it's just the mustache and the chin piece. And he actually reconnects with Amy in London as she's there to work on her art. And uh, he has since left the business with his grandfather and is working on his music. He is smitten with her, much like he was several years prior to this. (laughs) Apparently. Um, (laughs) Because they have zero interaction here before he starts pursuing her hard. Yeah. And she's engaged, but... uh, Essentially, they have it out, and she's like, you have this talent, but you don't apply yourself. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to you know, be involved with you if you're in the current state that you're in. So he ends up – he connects with her in Paris, excuse me, and then he ends up moving back to London. Right, to, to, to take back the business from his Yeah, to start working more uh, dedicatedly. And, um, and he tells her, don't do anything that will regret. Wait for me, basically, is what he says. So do you think that this is him finally learning from uh, Stoltz? Just playing the game a little differently. Is this where they have the big argument where he says, I'm not in love with Joe. I'm in love with your family. Uh, I want to say yes, because next time they see each other, they they just hook up. So uh, that was that's like a bold move. And the fact that it works on her, just I think it sells her character short. Because at first I was like, you go, Amy. Samantha Mathis puts the brakes really quickly. She says, I don't want to be with you if you're still in love with my sister. And then Bale doesn't say anything that would make the situation better. In my opinion, he makes it worse. He just says, listen, I was never really in love with her. I just, I've always wanted to be part of the March family. So you're next. <laughs> you're the last, you're, you're, save me, Amy March. You're my only hope. It's either uh, you or Susan Sarandon, because I have to wait until your dad passes away from old age, and then I can pounce there. I'm looking at like four or five more months tops. Uh Unfortunately, the situation in the March household turns dire as Joe has to return home from New York. Beth has taken a turn for the worse. I don't know if it's necessarily the fever had returned. It's just how how badly it had weakened her years previously is kind of caught up. And um, she is there to see Beth off. Then they have a back and forth about life and 
you know, what each other had to offer and how Beth believes it's her time to move on. Who uh, I would, I guess this would be the obvious Oscar scene for Claire Danes. Yeah, easily, easily. It also, it, it might be the meanest thing the movie does, which is it kills off the one character that was innocent and has no pretensions, had never done anything to harm anybody, because the other three sisters were constantly backstabbing each other, uh, even when they were on good terms. Uh, I'm not talking about the extreme acts like burning Joe's manuscript, but even, uh, you know, when our writer was constantly talking shit about Eric Stoltz, knowing that Meg liked them and uh you know they were they're constantly uh bickering and yeah uh, claire danes was always the one that was just chilling on the side <laughs> not getting involved she was there just if somebody needed a hug if somebody needed a uh a shoulder to cry on it was just her and her cat and of course the movie kills her off which is just kind of like a cheap ploy for emotion because they know that by now we've disconnected so far from the other uh three sisters that that's just the, the last uh, emotional string that they can plug. The, the one that represented the most hope. It's like, aha, we've got you. <laughs> you were too innocent to live in this world. So in the fallout of this, um, this is when Joe writes Little Women, right? Yes. In yeah. one night, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, Johnny Cash writing Walk the Line. She just, you know, the telltale crumpled up papers thrown over her shoulder and <laughs> Uh, basically just writes the story of them. They're growing up and their interactions as little women, the name coming from Susan Sarandon's group hug before she goes off to see their father, which says, oh, my little women. Uh, she also writes a letter to Lori and summons him and says, uh, hey. I'm still available. <laughs> Beth has died and Amy's stuck in uh, Paris. She doesn't have the money to get back. And so... In the ultimate baller move, he goes and picks her up in yep. his private jet, total Bruce Wayne style, and um, he brings her back to uh, the States to, what is the name of the town of Massachusetts they live in? Concord. And all the while, Meg has given birth. She's had twins, and Eric Stoltz is now a father, and Amy and... Lori show up at the household and Joe is the one to greet them. Uh, first, it's just Christian Bale and he explains, hey, I've got something to, to show you. <laughs> it's like he's got a new car or something and he's like, ta-da! It's like, yeah, I married your younger sister. And <laughs> Winona goes through like the whole range of emotions here. It's it's uh, Even with that, even when we know writers masterful acting for five seconds of just assimilating these news, I felt that the story didn't follow through with what is a pretty devastating blow to her. Because no at, this, at this time, she's, if not broken up, at least on a break with uh, Gabriel Byrne. Because his latest set of notes were just too much. So they're on a break. She's available. And when she writes to Christian Bale, telling him to come, she's basically saying, come back to me. This, this could happen. The post-Civil War era version of a booty call. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A booty gram. Uh, <laughs> uh, the postal booty. Uh, but go. then, so when she sees him, she is she embraces him, and you can feel that she's basically waiting to pick up where they left off. And uh, this, you would think, would drive the rest of the movie. The fact that he just married her sister. But it's resolved in, basically off screen. In the next scene, they're like, what, opening presents or something? And, uh, and, uh, 
Samantha Mathis leans over. She's like, hey, is it okay <laughs> that, that we did this? And when our writer goes, like, yeah, yeah, it's cool, man. And that's it. <laughs> it's yeah. settled. It definitely doesn't pay off. It's like uh, it's like how Mark Ruffalo just kind of gives up at the end of The Kids Are All Right. Uh, <laughs> here, it's just Winona Ryder's like, whatever. Where the whole movie has like set the table for this epic showdown between Joe and Amy with yep. like all of the, the shit Amy's gotten away with in her life and Joe feeling slighted. But whatever. She's too old to care at this point. She's 21. So um, <laughs> she's a spinster. Yeah. She gets notice in the mail that... Little Women is getting published. It's basically a published version of her book. Uh, as the mailing address on it was filled out to Friedrich. Uh, who's the old woman that lives with them? Is that their grandmother? No, it's uh, I think it's the maid. Oh, okay. Well, the maid, essentially, Friedrich came to drop it off, and she told him, uh, I guess he she assumed she he was looking for Amy. Because it, of his accent. Just, She's like, it's one yes. of the European friends. Classic, you know, um, misunderstanding in that she... Tells him that, no, she's since married. So he's trotting off. Fortunately, Joe's able to track him down on some dirt path on the way to his train station and explains to him, hey, I'm so thankful and, you know, I've missed you. My aunt left me this house when she died that we could turn into a school together. You know, we could start a life together. And he's like, but you're married. And she's like, oh, no, silly goose. That was my sister, not me. And he's like, oh, okay. Your writing sucks. Yeah. And then the words Little Women flash across the screen, and Someday by Sugar Ray starts playing. It's little Women, dot, 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 and the man who loved them. <laughs> the, the Little Women will return in Little Women, Winter Soldier. <laughs> uh, but no, they, they have this moment, of course, because at the end of the day, it's a romantic movie. So, of course, the, the rain kicks in, and he does accept her invitation to share a life together and the closing he accepts, he accepts her apology for uh, <laughs> having left him in New York. Yeah. He, she keeps going and he's kind of doing the finger motion. Like let's get to the apology. <laughs> and the closing line of the movie is he says something to the effect of, I have nothing to offer you. My hands are empty. And then she grabs his hand and puts her hand in it and says, not now. And then <laughs> we fade away and it says the end. And then a question mark appears. <laughs> uh, and like I said the movie ends on basically a betrayal of everything the Winona Ryder character stood for I mean I guess you're supposed to take away the fact that you know you're supposed to take away that she did achieve her independent dreams by getting her book published because she started dating a guy that had contacts in the publishing industry <laughs> and then of course all that's left is for her to marry this dude yeah, and I guess mission accomplished. I don't know. It just felt like such a, a weak. She essentially becomes Julia Gulia. She like lives the premise of the wedding singer in reverse. <laughs> yes, exactly. In the end, I it's such a standard rom com or even just rom <laughs> ending. It when it felt like this movie, the story was aiming for something a little more special, a little more individualistic. Um, yeah, not a fan. Yeah, they just kind of cut the legs out at the last minute and like, well, it is Christmas Day after all. We got to tie this up in a way people will appreciate. Everybody felt the way that Ryan feels about Gabriel Byrne. Like, how can she not end with him? <laughs> He's so distinguished. All right, Alex, are you ready for real talk? Thank you. Mommy, Mr. Brooke is this here. This is Mr. Brooke. 
As young Lawrence no longer requires a tutor, Mr. Lawrence has commissions for me in Washington. I should like to be of service to you there. We couldn't let you travel alone. Oh, Mr. Brooke, how kind of you. May I? Thank you. Are we to go on the six o'clock train? Yes, I sent Joe off, but she hasn't returned. I'm here. Oh, Joe, finally. Twenty-five. Can Aunt March spare this? I couldn't bear to ask her. I sold my hair. <gasps> oh, Joe, how could you? You're one beauty. This isn't going to affect the State of the oh. Union. It'll grow back. It suits you. <laughs> we'll tell Father that we love him. Tell him we pray for him. He'll bring him home. I'll never forget his kindness. Oh, Anna, thank you. All right, I am recording for Real Talk for Little Women 1994. As am I. It was Christmas Day of 1994, and the women were little. The end. Uh, Some of them got nominations. I guess just Winona, right? Yes, the movie was nominated for three Academy Awards. Winona Ryder being the only acting uh, nominee. We'll get to that in a little bit, just to, because I want to highlight how fucking insane the 1995 Academy Awards were. Directed by Jillian Armstrong, screenplay by Robert uh, Swikard, of course, based on Little Women, uh, eighteen sixty-eight. Little Women was uh, the first two volumes were published. Uh, the first volume, excuse me, and yeah, again, this would have been the fourth, I believe, film adaptation at the time. So what's Wouldn't the big be last? Uh, yeah, what's the big uh, swerve? The big difference in the the modern one. The modern one, and I didn't really care for this change until rewatching this one, the 94. And I'm like, oh, I actually, I miss the new ending. There's a new ending where basically Joe has a meeting with the publisher that wants to publish Little Women. And he wants her to change the ending. He says, you need to have her, the main character marry somebody at the end you can't have this story unless you know it has a happy ending and i've only seen the movie who tells joe this the publisher of the the, the guy that wants to publish her book and so it's really it's really weird it's very meta because as so it's an intercut between her conversation with this publisher and the traditional happy ending that you get like in this movie right where she meets the professor again and they end up getting married and you know hook up and happily ever after but at the same time it's intercut with uh joe and the publisher arguing because she doesn't want to do it and the the implication is that in real life joe didn't meet didn't marry the the teacher she just actually moved forward being an independent woman that didn't need to get married but but what you see what we've come to know as the the ending of little women is just the concession she made to her publisher because that's what was necessary to get the book published so I think it. I was not kidding. The church corner. I think it's a little weak the way that they end it. Uh, I think it takes the edge off Joe's character when you have her conclusion be so much about her relationship with a dude. You know, her whole arc, her whole story in the movie is about wanting to just be on her own, and yeah. it's pretty deflating that well she goes off to New York, but only so she can basically hook up with a guy in addition to publish a book it's i i think it's a lot stronger when you just you just see her basically make choices and sacrifices that lead to her having to choose between the life that uh her sisters have and the life that the passion that she has for writing for creating what this movie does is 
well, she can have her cake and eat it. She can be a published writer and she can have she can have a great love life. Yeah. And I think that that just that takes away some of the power in so the new movie, the new version actually finds a way of honoring what the original novel has as its ending but also give it a giving it a spin to where you can at least wonder, well, maybe there's more to the story. And you, you know, you don't feel as betrayed if you're a big fan of that aspect of the character. So that's pretty cool. That said, I mean, because we're in real talk, I I find I, I like Charles Run and Fine, but I think that Winona Ryder is she's better for me as Joe. I think that she she has more of a kind of like what Ryan said actually in his clip in Contrarian's Corner. Uh, I don't know I find her a little more charming than uh, than Charles Run and you'll have to watch the latest version and and you know just compare by yourself, Alex. I'm good. Um, <laughs> budget of fifteen million. A box office return of about fifty million, and of course the ninety-two percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and still to this day heralded as a, a classic by many. I don't have much of a better segue into you going through your quotes than that. <laughs> well, I mean, there are some people that don't like it, so I have two quotes from uh, Rotten Tomatoes, and then we have two clips from friends of the podcast. So let's start with the quotes. I have uh, Alex Sandal from Juicy Cerebellum, who says, a little sappy, to which I say, a little? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, a lot of. <laughs> a lot of women and a lot of sappy. And then Steve Rhodes from Internet Reviews says, the characters are two-dimensional stick figures. They do absolutely no wrong. To which I say, I don't know what movie you were watching, Steve, because they, I think they do plenty wrong. Yeah. She burns her sister's manuscript. Bitch. And then we have two clips. So first we have uh, the guys from Beyond the Box Set, uh, John and Harry, who I asked them to do a clip for Little Women because notoriously, when they did an episode about the newest Little Women, Harry hated it and <laughs> John loved it. And so even the suggestion that... Uh, they would have to watch the 94 version. I mean, I knew that it was going to set Harry off. So that's that's basically what happened. So, Harry, you have not seen the 1994 version of Little Women. But I know no. you did watch and loved I, I, the 2019. I never will. Okay. Well, I was going to ask you, having seen the 2019 Little Women, mm. what do you think, if theoretically, of a version of Little Women starring Winona Ryder in the Saoirse Ronan role? Better or worse? Better. Better, yeah? Purely just because I fancy Winona Ryder a little bit. Okay. Well, maybe so we should add Ronan, I hate like the devil. Hate like the devil. Such strong words. Okay, well, what if I was to tell you we were going to bring it to the show then? No. no? Veto. What, strong, complete veto. Complete veto. Is, it, is this just because you hate women? It's because I hate the film. Alright. The story is just so boring and predictable and also kind of confusing. You know, that is male privilege talking right there. I don't care. It's a boring film. It Uh should not have been remade eight times. Pearls before swine. (laughs) And he was right. He hit the number correctly. I said five film film adaptations during a Contrarian's Corner. Movie's been turned into fucking eight movies. Just just based off your uh, online comments and your text, I, I think that that's not the only thing that you think that he got right constantly no. calling it boring i kind of get the feeling that 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 hit your heart 
By the way, when he says that it's confusing, it's because that's the other big change in the latest Little Women. They they pulp fiction it to where it cuts back and forth between the the four years later New York time and the the timeline of them being actual Little Women. I guess it can be confusing because they you know all the actresses look fairly they look kind of the same, and you don't have the a different actress playing Amy. It's uh, always the same. The Greta <laughs> Gerwig movie. Yeah, you don't like Lady Bird? No. All right, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, you know what they clip. could they could all do with all those actresses and that money? They could have made something new <laughs> and original. Like Lady Bird? Yeah. Fuck it. Make a make a bad original movie, then a good remake of something that's been made. I'm like I can't even count. I mean, I could if I could focus on it, but okay, seven film adaptations, but then there's been like fucking four versions made for TV. Enough, enough. It's done. As Millhouse said, it's over. We did it. It's done. You know, the new generations they won't go back and watch the old stuff. That's you their fault. Keep, that's their you have fault. To keep it lively. Again, this is one of those things where I am the clear minority. <laughs> Clearly, not even an iota of the film-going population still thinks the way I do. I know a lot of people in the industry do, uh, like filmmakers and such, but the people that finance movies and the people that pay to see movies just want to see the same fucking uh, off-brand Jello served to them over and over again just so they can I mean, slurp they don't it up. I they don't want to nominate it for awards, though, because they... Uh... They but shunned less. the latest Little Women from the Oscars. I think it only got like best adapted screenplay, nomination, not a win. <laughs> what one? Oh, Parasite. There yeah. you go. That that validates what I'm saying right now. Maybe that's what you should do: make an original fucking movie like Parasite, and maybe someone will reward you for it. <laughs> I imagine the old fuckers that are in the Academy that were there when the first one came out in 1933 or whatever are just like this again. Hey. <laughs> Uh, we have one more clip from our friends uh, from the Movie Journey podcast, which uh, here is kind of a similar situation where Daniel hasn't seen the movie, but Dean has. And I guess Dean is a bigger fan of the newer version. Now, Dean, this little women, just how little are we talking here? <laughs> uh, I mean, they're pretty little. Uh Little in in more ways than one. They are little in stature and little in acting abilities, which is why, obviously, Winona Ryder, true wannabe starlet that she is, got this key key role of Joe March. Now, I am so glad I did not waste my first time viewing of a little women story on this utter garbage that is this bloody 1994. You know, they talk about 1994 as one of the greatest year in films. I put to you, little women, my good friends, little women. I, I just have to take your opinion on this. And you know, I take your opinion with such vigor and uh, positivity that anything you say about films, I just I just agree with completely. So if you say this film's terrible, I'm just going to agree with you because I haven't seen this thing and I don't plan to now. It is a travesty that this film is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Winona Ryder, for all her, you know, terrible acting abilities, just buries this character and this film, and no one should watch it. Just watch the new one. It's so good. Shersha Ronan all the way. There you, there you have it. Little Women 1994, completely panned by the Movie Journey podcast. <laughs> Collectively panned. Yeah, that goes a little bit farther than what I'm going to say. <laughs> and also kind of the inverse of that. I, 
I'm not ever going to be motivated to watch. I'd be much more likely to watch the Catherine Hepburn one if I ever had to watch another Little Women again than the. I do love Emma Watson, but not enough to watch another version of Little Women. Uh, I don't remember who plays uh, Beth because uh, what's her name? Actually, she got nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, the girl, the, the actress that plays Amy, who's the actress that plays uh, the main character in Fighting with My Family, and she was the main character in Midsummer. Uh, Florence Pugh. Yes, Florence Pugh got a Best Supporting Actress nomination. Well deserved. She's really good, Beth. but she gets to be no. She played Amy, and she gets to play Amy through the entire movie. So I think that that helps. No, Beth was played by Eliza Scan Scanlon. Okay, that's the one oh, actress man. I didn't know. Laura Dern played Susan Sarandon. They should have said Susan Sarandon. Mer- of of course, Meryl Streep's in it. Yeah, she and, plays the aunt. Yeah, and it, of course, it's fucking two hours and twenty minutes long. <laughs> Fuck out of here. Chris Cooper plays the. The neighbor, the old neighbor, the uh, woo, Lori's uh, grandfather, and they give him a lot more screen time in this version. So you know, so it makes a lot more sense. Chris Cooper's when... in the Muppets. Mm-hmm. Chris yes. Cooper's also in the Muppets. You can watch that instead <laughs> of fucking little rap. Woman. But if you want to see him play an old man that gets sentimental with his piano, uh, that that plot development makes a lot more sense in the 2019 version of the movie. <laughs> they build up to it a lot better. I, I don't know how I could possibly care. Even if I like had seen Little Women up until that point in my life, I don't. Just like I'm saying, like with the Academy and anyone of facilitated and refined film knowledge could have possibly cared about Little Women in 2019. That blows my mind that it made $200 million. That is. That is uh, that offends me on a profound level. <laughs> but I think it goes back to a little bit what you were what saying. What are you talking about? It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score, and Best Costume Design. Oh, really? I completely forgot. Oh, then when they were talking about it being snubbed, I guess they just meant because of uh, no directing nomination for uh, Greta Gerwig. Who gives a shit? Direct an original movie. <laughs> Even if it's the Joker, direct something original. Watching the new one, though, I totally get. I mean, obviously, if you like the 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 story to begin with, it's you know you're gonna get something out of it. But then, also, like I was telling you in Contreras Corner, that this is these were the frustrations that women had to deal with back then, and how they mirror the frustrations that they still deal with today. What has changed? What hasn't changed? All the stuff. I think that those points are made a lot more strongly in the new version to where I can see why it's worthy of existing. It's not that they just didn't do the Psycho remake. You know, they actually, I think that they took the movie and they gave it enough of a modern spin to where you can see why somebody could get something out of it, even if they've already seen a previous version. So in that sense, I'm like, that's fine. I I mean, we talked about it. We had an entire season where we're talking about remakes and what made them okay versus what made them a waste of time. And I think in this case, you know, any of those we did though, there haven't been seven movies of it of the same (laughs) movie. How many Texas Chainsaw Massacres? Well, that depends on your qualifications. (laughs) Uh, 
I think there's been like three that are supposed to be based on the original. We can argue about that until the cows come home, as they say. Um, I'll just say in a few years when uh, John Carpenter's Little Women comes out, that kind of cast that you couldn't say no to. You know, Ronda Rousey as Joe. (laughs) (laughs) No, it'd have to be uh, Gina Carano because Ronda, I can give or take. And then they bring back Susan Sarandon as the mom. (laughs) I'll be all right with it. Yeah, the real stuff. I I really still think Tarantino should have got best original screenplay. That would be my snub for last year. Oh, and Leo was better in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood than Joaquin Phoenix was in Joker. I don't think it's a surprise. I was about to say, I don't think I'm breaking much ground talking about that. But we're not here to talk about the 2019 Little Women as much as my frustrations and venting may uh, make it appear. When looking to the Academy and what they. Went to uh, acknowledge and potentially award Little Women in 1994 for. It was, as we mentioned, uh, Miss Winona Ryder, the star of the summer, getting a Best Actress nomination. Uh, She was alongside Susan Sarandon for The Clients, uh, Miranda Richardson for Tom and Viv, Jodie Foster for Nell, and Jessica Lange for Blue Sky. Uh, one of my all-time favorite articles I've ever read on the internet, I should track it down and bookmark it just to have it, was this guy's quest to find the worst movie ever made. Like, And he basically very satirically analyzed movies that were really bad and just like it, very it, probably liked it so much because it mirrored what we do here. And uh, he did Nell for one of his pieces and just like uh-huh. – Sometimes you know how sometimes reading something is funnier than if someone would be saying it to you, like, <laughs> and, or if you like, if he had like list, if it was a podcast, it wouldn't be as funny as it was reading it. Him breaking down the plot of how stupid it is and how like it's place and contention for the worst movie ever made. So whenever I see any allusion to it, I just start laughing thinking about it. Have you ever seen it before? I haven't. That's the one where uh, Tay and uh, the Jodie Foster can't talk. Right? She. She was basically raised in like uh, a situation where there was no access to the outside world, so she knows this language that's like this completely made up thing that only she understands. It also led to that incredible line on Parks and Rec where um, Rashida Jones's character forgets how to talk to men, and Donna says to her, "Are you Nell from the movie <laughs> Nell?" But the 1994 uh, Academy Awards celebrated in 1995, I should say. The 1995 Academy Awards also had nominations for Little Women for, not surprisingly, Best Costume Design and also Best Original Score, which was uh, Mr. Thomas Newman, who, of course, I'm blanking now, but has just a murderer's row of scores that he provided throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It's one of those guys. Yeah, not quite on that Hans Zimmer level, who, appropriately enough, Hans Zimmer won the Academy Award that year for Best Original Score for Lion King because... As was shouted out in one of our mentions, the 1994 year in film was a <laughs> banger to end all bangers. Speed, Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, True Lies, Bullets Over Broadway, Wyatt Earp, uh, Interview with the Vampire. The list goes Forrest on Gump. and on. Forrest Gump was the one that won. But we've already discussed that in pretty good detail on our Pulp Fiction episodes as well as our Bullets Over Broadway episode. Um, Winona did not win. Was she worthy in such a crowded year, Julio, in your opinion, of the uh, Best Actress nomination? Well, I'll give you a two-part answer. 
<laughs> one is I think she is fucking fantastic in this movie. No surprise, I told you. I, I prefer her performance here as Joe to Sharsha Ronan's in the most recent one. But at the same time, if I'm going to be fair, I haven't seen most of those nominees. I, I remember Jessica Lange winning. And I think the story behind that is that that movie had been made for a while. I had been shelved and it took a while for it to get distributed or something. So there were people that were saying, oh, well, that's why she got the award <laughs> because it's it makes for a good story. This There was such struggle to get this movie released and then it gets released and she gets nominated and wins. I don't know. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen Nell. And who are the other two? It was two other versions of Little Women that were made. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, the Tom and Vit, version where she Tom and Viv, uh, Miranda Richardson, and Susan Sarandon in The Client. Yeah, I haven't even seen The Client, which is, I think, the most popcorn movie out of all of those. Joel Schmacker, but yeah, Man I haven't seen people. that one. And then I haven't seen the the Miranda Richardson movie. Is that the movie with uh, Ray Fiennes? Willem Dafoe. Oh, I don't even know what movie it is. Then. <laughs> Christian Bale, shockingly, was not in the Best Supporting Actor category <laughs> alongside uh, Martin Landau, Samuel Jackson, Chaz Palminteri, Paul Schofield, and... Gary Sinise as the titans of the industry that filled out that category. A young Jesus. Christian Bale did not. Post Caulfield is for a quiz show, right? Yes, sir. I mean, I think Bale is, is fine here. He gets a pretty good Oscar clip when he Man, gets rejected. Yeah, a quick pause. That is like that's gotta be one of the all time lineups for best supporting actor. <laughs> that's that's insane. Yeah. Uh yeah, Bale, uh, he's so his performance is so comical uh, watching through the eyes of 2020 because it's like he's clearly so talented, but he's also so like virginly and, you know, the expression wet behind the ears here. He's still trying to find his footing overall, but it's so clear that he has so much talent. Uh, it's just it's not conveyed necessarily all the time um, because he he's very like uh, we kept talking about how much he smiles in this. He's very... Um, like energetic and really sprightly and happy to be there type thing. And that makes it funny just knowing like what we know of him now and the stuff we've seen him in. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's great. It's, it's a, it's a true novelty watching this through the eyes of 20. And I don't mean that in any bad way. It's kind of, it's kind of like a treat to see him do something so impish and whimsical as they would say uh, <laughs> to the point where he kind of kept me afloat throughout the movie. He was your in? Yes. Uh, even though the story, I was like, man, what the fuck? He's like just going with her sister now. <laughs> but yeah, when you, I, I came into this fairly knowledgeless. Uh, I remembered the poster because the poster was like, God, that was like McDonald's shit. That's something like a poster that would be in McDonald's when they had Happy Meal toys for something at Christmas time. It was Collect so. Collect all four little women. Exactly. It was so milk toast mid 90s even just looking at it now it, uh i can see the vhs cover for it it's like that's the kind of poster i look at and i can see a vhs cover that's like creased and crinkled from being like sat on and pushed around and stuff um it definitely it does a really good job of transporting you back to a time period not the civil war but more of just the <laughs> mid 90s and home media at the time um but when you said christian bale was in it i was like i have no idea so th that was really cool uh claire danes is uh i couldn't tell if you're fucking me in contrarian's corner i mean i think she's pretty great 
I think she's great in her death scene. That I I legit I I teared up when she I I've forgotten and I've seen it fairly recently. I I watched it last year when my mother was visiting and uh I had forgotten how just like the things she says are very fucking sad, you know, yeah. it, but but she pulls it off. She's you know, cuz she's crying, but she's also trying to be strong for her sister and when she says I don't like being left behind. It's just so sad because that's the truth. You know, everybody else has moved on and she was the only one without ambition. She stayed there and she got sick. Yeah. <laughs> and and then she tries to make a joke by saying, this time I'm the one that's going ahead. It's just so, it's heartbreaking and she nails it. I am not so crazy about the scene that you love. Let's that, calm I down. Think that's I don't know me. if I use the word love, but... Uh... The, the, the scene that you really liked where she cries and yeah. when, when they're handing her the baby, it, uh, I don't know. I felt like... I couldn't get on the wavelength of her reaction. I, I think I was having trouble doing what you did, which is understanding that she's a 15-year-old <laughs> that's suddenly facing this family crisis and she doesn't even know what they're saying. Maybe just in my, in that case, knowing everything that was supposed to happen, having seen this story play out twice already, <laughs> um, I, that took away some of the power for me. To me, I was like, you're overreacting. You're not supposed to know that it's, that it's this bad. Mm-hmm. But... Like you said, I mean, back in the day, maybe they always assumed it was going to be that bad. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I just kind of likened it to, I, I don't know. I, I obviously wasn't too tuned in at that point in the movie, uh, but like I had likened it to, in the first portion, Tom Hanks and Big, that scene where it's just like all him, like reacting and like yeah. clearly being scared and overwhelmed. Um, so it kind of was the first thing in the movie that caught me of like, oh, there's like, some genuinely good acting in this, uh, especially because I read beforehand it was Claire Danes' first movie, so I wasn't sure what I was getting. It's like, oh, nope, she was always great. Um, <laughs> yeah, her death scene's fucking rough. And uh, I think the kind of thankless role, at least in this interpretation, I don't know if this stays the same throughout them, the role of Meg Trini Al- Alvarado. Fine, there. The thing is, there's really not much to that character. Uh, yes, and uh, having only seen this version and the 2019 version, I it's the same on both. I mean, they got even, a, I guess, a bigger name. They got Emma Watson uh, to play Meg, and I still felt like by the end, that character story was somehow not as engaging as everything else that's going on. I guess because she follows the more traditional path. She's just trying to get a husband, and then she gets a husband. And I guess the big thing is that he's not... She doesn't marry a rich guy that could have helped everybody else out, but Fuck there's em. really not much. Uh, and then the movie punishes her with karma in the end by having her have twins. <laughs> then she uh, asks Susan Sarandon, how do you do this four times? Yeah. And Eric Stoltz is like, well, never two at once. God. <laughs> oh, I just saw on the credits, Denal Logue, his last name was Mayor. He wasn't the mayor of New York. Because she said Mr. Mayor, and I just assumed that meant he was the mayor of New York. Oh, so they were not hanging out with the high class. They were just hanging out with uh, Gabriel Burns' buddies, his poker buddies. No, but now we need a movie where Denal Logue plays um, Giuliani. <laughs> Denal Logue is the mayor of New York. Winona, yeah, we'll, we'll get to her, and then I think we'll just tackle the movie overall. It, it She's good. She is much more believable and um 
I appreciated and bought her a lot more in this than I did in the Crucible. Because remember, my a lot of a lot of my mm-hmm. critique or criticism, or just feedback, I think is the the proper PC word these days, uh, was that she's a good actress, but just not in that type of role, not in a period piece. I also offered that you have to be a special kind of animal to be good in a period piece when you're going against <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis. I think the absence of DDL in this worked in her favor miraculously or considerably (laughs) because yeah, she was great because there was no one there to really take the shine off of it. And also let's be fair. She's, it's a lot more toned down. It's a lot more realistic performance in this. It's not a lot of like over the top melodrama. Yeah. It it plays a different register uh, because she's not pretending to see ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and the the language itself, I think it's a little more accessible than the language in the in the Crucible. I think that yeah, there's there's period pieces and then there's period pieces and there's Shakespeare. You know, that's what you said about period pieces. I usually say about Shakespeare. I was like, you can have the greatest actor, but some people they just can't pull off uh, Shakespeare's lines. Yeah, it's just so but Gerard when, Butler and Coriolanus for one. <laughs> uh, but I guess I'd forgotten, which is crazy, because, I, like I said, I saw this movie for the first time just last year. And then shortly after, I watched the 2019 version. I think that that maybe obscured my memory of what the Winona Ryder performance was here, because I was actually surprised by how relaxed it is, how effortless it is, how funny. Like, she seems to be having a lot of fun. And I honestly, I don't remember now. The, my my main recollection from the Shosha Ronan performance, which is really good, was that, that she was very intense. And when our writer's Joe is also intense, but also more, uh, I don't know, she feels like more mischievous and more, just, she's just having fun. I, I see her like laughing and poking at, uh, at Lori and at her sisters and everybody else uh, in a way that feels very natural, very believable. And then when she has her, her big moments, uh, which I told you, I think before we started recording, I couldn't quite place an Oscar clip for her. I feel that Bale gets one, Claire Danes gets one, but I don't know that she has like the big scene. She gets a lot of reactions to the bigger scenes, and I think she's great throughout, but I don't know that she gets like a standalone moment. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd probably agree with that. I'm just trying to rack my brain right now thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, she has that moment when she's talking to Susan Sarandon, that's you know, pretty good, but I don't know. I guess the way it's framed, it's not framed like, like Bale's rejection scene. It's framed toward, yeah, this is the clip they'll play at the Oscars. Well, fortunately, <laughs> as you, you said you did the research and they didn't actually play a clip, so it didn't come. Yes. Through. I was dying because I told you, I watched the movie and I'm like, what was the Oscar clip? Usually we can tell, or at least we, we can guess. I didn't have a guess this time. So I looked it up on YouTube. No clips that year. The fuckers just put pictures, <laughs> take away some of the best, uh, elements of the ceremony. They had to cut away from Winona before she said pig fuck. And that was the <laughs> yeah. the kicker. Which is crazy because I maybe I'm just imagining like making this up, but didn't uh Samuel Jackson get his uh Ezekiel speech as part of the clip mm. when he was nominated? Or maybe uh, I'm thinking of just the, the clip of best movie. Yeah, that that had to have played at some point. It's also played on many many Oscar broadcasts (laughs) since then. Um, Yes. Kirsten Dunst, we didn't touch on. Again, she's Kirsten Dunst. Go and listen to our Elizabethtown episode. We (laughs) fawn over how 
capable and oftentimes delivering she is as an actress in this she is very much a little kid actor she is very much uh very you can tell was obsessed about making sure she memorized her lines which she does she does great it's just kind of uh it's funny it's similar to the christian bale thing it's funny and kind of a novelty to watch through these eyes as a little kid she was a better actor than i would be but at the same time just to see how far she's come and uh, you know, kind of pitted against other child acting performances. It's great. I think that uh, Kirsten Dunst, as a child actress, had that gift of being able to play precautious without being annoying, because she does it in an Interview with a Vampire, and I guess somewhat in Jumanji. I don't remember really much of the original Jumanji, but, but you know, usually especially if it's a Shane Black movie, for example, the precocious kid just gets on your nerves. And it's like, can you just behave like a real person? Uh, in this case, it, it doesn't, I think that she pulls it off. You can tell that she's precocious, but but it's fine. It, it feels natural. She, she can pull it off. Uh, I would even argue she pulls it off to the detriment of Samantha Mathis when Samantha Mathis comes on because I find I myself agree. missing Kirsten Dunst and I wish that somehow we'd found a way to age her properly to where she would be believable as uh, put her on stilts <laughs> just give her the make give her the j edgar makeup <laughs> just yeah she, the, she's aged this was after edward scissorhands so they could have just done the old woman makeup on her when on i could have given her some tips how yeah. to uh lower her her register or voice uh, i mean i like samantha math is fine i think that she does well but uh Kirsten Dunst makes such a strong impression that it's kind of sad when she leaves the movie and suddenly it's like, oh, we're sh- now we have Samantha Mathis. Um, she's also, by the way, Samantha Mathis, I can't believe that you don't know her from anything because she's also in the fantastic John Travolta Christian Slater vehicle, Broken Arrow. Let me see here. She's an American psycho. Oh, she was in the Thomas Jane Punisher. Not looking good, man. <laughs> I thought, I agree with you. She Not that like the ball was dropped per se. It's just kind of like that's always really hard to pull off in a movie when the same character has two different people playing it. Cause mm-hmm. if one is like, obviously the, the conundrum is what if one's more powerful than the other one, it doesn't work the same. <laughs> and that yeah. was the thing. A lot of, uh, I think the the innocence and, um, privilege and naivety of the Amy character works a lot better with a little kid than an adult. And to pull that off, it obviously requires a completely different set of skills as an adult actress. So, uh, okay. That sounded bad as an adult (laughs) character. (laughs) So all in all, I did a lot of introspection during this movie and I came to realize I am not really a period piece person. If, your movie is taking place before 1920. You're going to need to have like a war going on or <laughs> some fantastical element to it. Um, I mean, there are exceptions like with the crucible, just like I mentioned, Daniel day Lewis's performance in that is so good. I had absolutely no problem like hanging on to it, but, but there's also a completely different kind of conflict there. I mean, yeah. I think when you're saying period piece, is you're saying what I think of when I think of period piece is a movie like Little Women or all the Jane Austen adaptations, that kind of movie where it's women being very limited on what they can do in kind of clashing against the conventions and men 
being kind of dicks, but still getting away with it because that was the time. <laughs> you know? But even still, it's like Lincoln. I was bored to death in that movie. Uh, that, that That is a serious problem, man. Like, he freed the slaves. Okay. I'm not saying I don't <laughs> like what Abraham Lincoln did, but... Tommy Lee Jones was sleeping with a black woman. Like this movie in particular, it's just... I, I usually don't go out of my way to watch movies that... There's the whole really cool plot of movies that take place in like the roaring 20s and the 30s and then, you know, getting into the 40s and the 50s and uh, Hollywood movies and things like that. And uh, obviously anything based kind of 80s onward, 70s onward for me, there's a lot of elements to those I can relate to. And like with this movie, obviously I was joking a lot about it in the beginning, but there's a lot of things I can't relate to. And that boils down to. Uh, one, the female side of the plot, which, again, I forget what we talked about. Might have been Black Panther. There was some movie we talked about where people... I mean, if it was Black Panther, I guess the, the political side of Black Panther? Well, that's just going to say, because for me, it seems like I'm complaining about that I can't relate to this movie about women, which is not me complaining in a general sense. It's me explaining how I like my personal feelings on it because, right. yes, plenty. there should be a lot more movies like this that center around just the plight of middle-class woman. Uh, but for me personally, I kind of watch it and there's a lot I can't relate to. And then you tack on to the period of it all. And it's like, I am never going to go to a gala like this. Like there's no, there's no situation <laughs> in my life where something like this is going to happen. So it's really hard for me to relate to. Whereas like with Adventureland, I can relate to like everything in that movie and make a stronger connection to it. I think that's what happens with these movies that we do where if I can connect to the plot, I can kind of just zone in on it then. And that helps me see past some shortcomings that like people may have with it. Uh, like we did with the Adventureland episode. Whereas with this, like I have just a hard, such a hard time uh, putting myself in anyone's shoes in this movie and kind of seeing it from any perspective uh, that it just becomes me just kind of like looking for things uh, mm -hmm. in the periphery to enjoy. I'm like, hey, Christian Bale smiling or, you know, uh, <laughs> the costumes look cool or whatnot. So I, there's part of me that feels like I'm not giving this movie um, a, a just review. And I think a big part of that is because it's just I guess I'm not the target market for it. I mean, you can't like every type of movie that is perfectly valid. That's my story with most horror movies that you love. <laughs> just like. Not for me, man. <laughs> I can appreciate the elements that work, and I can point out things that don't work for me that most people that love the movie don't care about because they love the movie. But you know, when you're not into the genre, you're not into that specific. When you're not connected, then yeah, it, it's it's a lot harder. I I wouldn't say I love period pieces. I certainly I find them daunting. Sometimes I completely fall for it. I in this case for Little Women, especially this second time, I was so in. And I think it just it goes partly to just the, the performers. I, I think that watching Winona Ryder, Kirsten Dunst, Claire Danes do their thing was just I, I found it just kind of spellbinding. Uh, at the same time, there's plenty of period pieces that have the same trappings that I just can't get into or I can get into just uh, sporadically. And then most of the time I'm just kind of bored or just waiting for something to happen or just frustrated because the characters are not behaving in a way that I can just relate to or, or that, that, you know, makes sense to me. 
And I have to keep going back to the justification. Oh, well, it was like back in the day, that's how they behaved. I didn't have that problem with this movie. You know, this movie, I buy it pretty much the entire time. But also, I don't know how much, like I grew up hearing about Little Women. Uh, my mother was kind of a big fan of the book and she had watched like, I don't know how many of those TV adaptations. I know that <laughs> one time she watched it while I was there with her. And so, I don't know, I guess I also have a little bit of history with it. So, you know, that helps. I still would say, I don't think you'll ever have me suggest a period piece movie as the first choice to watch. Yeah, it something I find with it, I guess probably just this one because it's the most recent one I watched. There's just long periods of time where nothing happens. Like this movie, like there would just be periods of time where it just seemed like they were saying the same thing over and over again for like 20 minutes. And I was just like, let's just let's move it along. Like I said, but see, that's uh, like the when they're putting on their place, that kind of stuff. I mean, there's really nothing happening, but I did get a kick out of just seeing those actresses just interacting, feeling like sisters and having a good time. And, uh, you know, when our writer with her fake mustache and uh, <laughs> their homemade newspapers and the pipes, that stuff I, I just found really amusing. But I find it amusing with this cast. You know, if, if, it, if you don't have these actresses, there's a pretty good chance that it just wouldn't work for me. I would get restless and want the story to keep moving. You know, it's a really good period piece. Gladiator. <sighs> we will also do Gladiator <laughs> on the show at some point because that is... I'm worried, man. I'm worried about revisiting it. I have such a sentimental <laughs> attachment to it that I'm worried about it. I was trying to figure out if I'd ever heard you say that you liked a period piece. And uh, the closest I came to was uh, Water for Elephants. Water for Elephants would, is great. Yeah, would you, but that's would, like 20s? 30s yeah would you classify Django as a period piece I mean I guess by the textbook definition <laughs> you would say it's a period piece but would you describe Snow White and the Huntsman as a period piece uh, no that is medieval fantasy sir okay thank you there's a I appreciate the delineation I was wondering that too there has to be uh, I'll, I'll have to go through my DVDs there's got to be something in there well, especially because you're such a romantic and that is something that that genre is about you know you you become this one not so much because I mean you want to talk about a shortcoming I do not care for the the Gabriel Byrne when our writer relationship I resent it <laughs> and uh, of course I resent it because of where it goes but I also I'm sorry Ryan I just don't find him that charming in this movie I find him kind of like I said in the corner, I find him a little dull I, I understand why he is that way because he needs to be different from what she's experienced before but the aura he projects as a grown up that's an intellectual it just I, I don't know I find him a drag and, to uh, me, the whole meet cute thing undermined a lot of the movie. That like that was the final point where I just completely checked out. Like I kind of relit my vigor when I was like, "Why aren't you more mad at Amy? She's like cut your knees off at every stop in like <laughs> your life." But uh, yeah, like it went from this movie that was kind of like a deconstruction of the rom com and just turned into the rom com that I was just. <laughs> It's like, whatever. One of our, uh, forgive me for not remembering the exact one, one of our uh, contributors used the word predictable, and I think that's, there becomes a point in this movie where it just becomes so heavily predictable that if you're not completely engaged, because there's plenty of predictable movies I've watched, but if you're not engaged by that point, it's just like, whatever. 
But I think if you were invested in the romance, it might have been it might have made it a little easier for you. Yeah. yeah. But again, this movie doesn't have much of that. At least I don't think so. You know, because uh, Joe and Lori are not supposed to be. That would be the the, the relationship you're rooting for in a, your standard movie but that's not what this is about and i don't know i don't think that you ever really care much for the relationship between Lori and amy at least i didn't and that's the kind of stuff that usually you know sometimes you'll surprise me because i'll be like alex likes this and then i realize oh yeah of course he does because this is a fucking love story underneath <laughs> it all so uh this one i don't think it's a love story i think it kind of turns into a love story but when you look at the big picture it isn't so it, that's not how it was going to get you yeah, I mean, glad a blind spot that I'm glad I've uncovered in my film viewing uh, at the same time. Not terribly interested to revisit it. More than anything, it kind of lit this desire for me to figure out what period pieces I like and what my deal is with them. What's going to happen is suddenly listeners are going to start throwing period pieces at you. Well, like I said, if it's got a like glory, yeah, I that's fucking a war love movie. Glory. That's not a period. I mean, it's a period piece, but <laughs> semantics. So, I think it's it probably has something to do with my ADD or some shit that I just need to be constantly stimulated or something that I can cling to for me to make it. Um, What's your score? I for what it is, I think it's a it's a B. It's a solid B. Uh, again, not necessarily a movie that I'm going to be putting in my Christmas rotation. But while there are things that could use some tweaking, I think all in all, most of this works really well. The fact that I don't buy Friedrich, what's the actor's name? Gabriel Byrne. Yeah. Mr. Byrne. I I don't buy his chemistry with Monona Ryder at all. That's, that's me. It doesn't mean that it doesn't work in the overarching idea of the movie. So for all in all uh, the faults that we have, it's good. I, I give it a solid B. I, I had it at four stars after I watched it last year, and I'm struggling with deciding if I bump it up half a star. My it's, God. It's never going to be five stars because I just don't like that ending. And yeah. It really irritates me. But everything else works so well. And I, I, I'm I not kidding. I really was in awe of Winona Ryder's performance. I think that it's just so, you know, like when we say effortless in this show you know because it's not going back to the thing she doesn't get like any big leave me my name moments here but she's the glue that basically keeps this entire movie together and that is oh man that's a big deal you're gonna get real upset with me when we get to the winonis and i talk about how much more i liked her in the dilemma than little women (laughs) like we've established you like your winona uh corrupted and just vindictive vindictive machiavellian if she can hurt you that's when when you really get interested (laughs) dominatrixly is how i (laughs) yes prefer domineering yeah let's let's go with four and a half i was really very very happy excellent all right so that is little women julio up next is Uh, our final feature of the summer of winona this is it. We've, build, we've been building up to get all the way back to the beginning. Up next is Heathers. I'm excited. You talk about blind spots in my film viewing that I've always wanted to visit. This is definitely one of them, so I'm pumped. I bought the Steelbook, and I haven't even opened it yet. Hell yeah. So I, I am very excited. You can really, really judge a lot about a man by the Steelbooks that he has in his collection. <laughs> 
shout out to our friend Paul from Filmbusters who makes his own steelbooks. <laughs> if, uh, if we follow him on Twitter, he'll post occasionally pictures that uh, of the steelbooks he's made. And of course, he had to post a picture of one he made for Midsummer. And I was like, oh, come on, man. I was about to say, what a legend. And then you worked Midsummer in there. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> what a shame. All right. Heather's on deck. Moving along to plugs. So, as always, we want to give a thank you to the Festive Years who provide our opening and closing tracks, and they've also been so kind as to provide some supplemental music during the summer of Winona. Uh, head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our friend Hans Rothgieser, he who made our logo, he who writes zombie novels, he who has three podcasts, Renaissance Man, he uh, has a website called mildemonios.pe. That's M I L D M O N I O S. That's where you can find about all his stuff. Uh, you can also listen to his podcasts. Uh, Nación Combi and Marginal are in Spanish. One is about uh, Peruvian current affairs, the other one is about economy. Those are in every podcatcher. Or you can listen to his podcast in English, Living in Peru. That's on iVox. That's about immigrants to Peru. Check out uh, Hans. You can also follow him on Twitter at Mildemonios, or you can email him directly, Mildemonios at Hotmail.com. And lastly, we want to give thanks to Zoe Perez, our social media curator, social media guru, etc., etc. Helps keep our Instagram page all nice and pretty. And my understanding is she'll be working her way to our Facebook page soon, which is quite the undertaking. So, Zoe, as always, your work is much appreciated. So, Alex, do you have any plugs? Well, it's only been a couple days since we recorded last, so not too much has gone on. I've started rewatching the uh, Wet Hot American Summer Netflix series. It's a prequel. Well, there's the prequel and then there's the sequel. There's oh. two different series. Definitely not for everybody, but I think they're fucking hilarious. And then uh, when we did our Homefront episode, speaking about Sylvester Stallone and his film contributions, I did a lot to uh, praise Rocky and Rocky Balboa. And so I went back and revisited Rocky Balboa uh, over the weekend. That might've been like Sunday night after we recorded, I went and watched it. So good. (laughs) So just like uh, there's no logical reason that movie is as good as it is. It has no right to be as good as it is. It's just absolutely preposterous, but it's, it's so good. I think I said on the home front one and I stick by it. If I could only pick two Rocky movies to have the rest of my life, it'd be Rocky and Rocky Balboa. Those are definitely out of the 20 Rocky movies. Yes. Out of the, what do they call Marvel? The multiverse, the, the cinematic universe <laughs> that is Rocky. Uh, but yeah. Rocky Balboa, just perfect, ridiculous action movie with a little bit of heart to it as well. And there's a dog in the- it. So, you know, I, I fall for that. Uh, my plug for this week is a movie based on a book by Terry Pratchett, which I've mentioned on the show before. Uh, I mentioned I was reading one of his books, and this is based on another one, but it's all based on the same uh, universe, the Pratchett Cinematic Universe, the Pratchett Book Universe. Uh, anyway, it's really... PCU. I don't remember how much I said about Terry Pratchett uh, back in that episode, but basically his it's, it's fantasy, it's comedic fantasy and it's just uh, a fantasy world that has very strong parallels with ours and each novel usually uh, deals with some sort of development in that fantasy world uh, that's a big deal and changes it so the first time that there's a newspaper or the first time that there's a train that was the, the most recent one I read the first time there's a bank there's one that's about the first time that a post office opens or rather about how a post office becomes relevant again after having fallen and 
to this array. And so there's an adaptation from the BBC from a few years ago. And it's actually really funny. It's not the kind of thing that it's hard to translate because I think that when you're doing fantasy, and I'm not talking about fantasy like Game of Thrones where you, you know it's like dudes with swords and whatever, but this kind of whimsical fantasy where you're supposed to have a I don't know, trolls and ogres and witches and whatever, golems, but being funny, it's hard to translate that. When you're reading it, your your brain makes sense of it. When you see it on the screen, it just looks fake. Yeah. Uh, because you're trying to be lighthearted. And it, if you're trying to be lighthearted, then you can't be as realistic and scary as, you know, something like, like when you're watching Lord of the Rings, I, I guess. So when I first started watching it, I was like, oh man, we're in trouble because this looks like fucking Renaissance Festival and just people wearing cheap costumes and but then this this movie proves that you can get past that if you have really good actors and you have sharp writing i think that they stuck to the book i'm sure some of the funniest stuff has to be directly from the book but it's basically the the story of this this con man that gets captured by the the guy that runs the city and his punishment he he basically chooses between uh being uh, executed or taking over the post office. So he's forced to take over the post office and he puts all his experience as a con man into uh, reviving the post office. And he comes up with, you know, stupid shit that we take for granted here, but uh, he comes up with uh, the idea of making stamps that are collectible and that revolutionizes everything. <laughs> you know, suddenly the idea that you can collect stamps, you can make them collectible and you want to buy them and all that stuff, little things like that. It's it's really funny. It's really good. It's on Amazon Prime, or at least it was when I watched it uh, a little while ago. Take us out of here, Alex. All right. So that is going to wrap up Little Women uh, for our next episode. Uh, I am very excited, and I believe Julio is as well. We'll be visiting Heather's uh, Christian Slater making his Contrarians debut. I think so, yeah. What a milestone. We talked about it before. Oh, yeah. Hell of a guy. So (laughs) the summer of Winona is coming to an end. We're approaching our last day at camp, but we still have a few more stops to make. Uh, before the bus picks us up so that is going to do it for this episode of the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong and we will catch you next time